And were you raised with uh, Christianity in your life? Uh, I was. I was raised a Baptist, but, you know, as most people, when you get into school, into high school, and you sort of walk away from uh, your traditional roots and your traditional beliefs, and you get educated in things that are not about the Bible, but after a while... I started to ask hard questions about science and ask hard questions about some of the different research techniques and the theories. And, you know, I found it that you have to have more faith in science than you do in religion. And so I slowly made my way back and actually came back to being a Christian and believing in God and Jesus and searching out the Bible through a author of the 70s who my brother challenged me to read one of his books if I had the courage to do so. And that was uh, an author by the name of Hal Lindsey who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth. And so that book really scared the socks off of me and I wanted to verify the accuracy and the veracity of what he was saying and that sort of led me back into the Bible and, and down into my research path that, you know, led to this book. And I'm a prophecy, prophecy buff by uh, my biggest passion, but I'm also a mythology uh, buff, and I'm also a history fan. So, uh, you know, when I wrote the book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, it was able to put all of this together. Awesome. I've heard of Hal Lindsey. I know he's a pretty respected author. Yeah, he was one of the cutting-edge authors, and he wrote many, many books. Uh, but Late Great was be probably his most successful book. And he, he actually is still doing some broadcasts even today. Uh, I think he has a weekly show that's on, on some channels. So he's still alive, and, uh, yeah, he had a big impact on me. Oh, boy, he must be in his, what, his 80s by now? He, he he's not he's not a spring chicken, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, wow, well, props to him for keeping it going at an elder age. Wow. Yeah. And this uh, period where you became kind of disassociated with Christianity, it sounds very interesting. Um, it, it sounds like you became very interested in science. Did you become an outright atheist at that point? Yeah, pretty much. I was pretty much bought into evolution and pretty much bought into, um, you know, the Bible was not fact and it was just, you know, another sort of set of writings and so it's 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 amazing how easily that um if, if you know if you're not totally sound and 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 active how easily you can be misled especially when you're young but again it was more my questioning what they were really saying and what they really didn't know and all the sort of things that they guess at that and all of the things that you know, that they um, don't consider because they're very much an agenda-oriented uh, belief system. And so I was prime again to sort of be encouraged to come back to believing in the Bible. It was not that big of leap at the point where I was really doubting, you know, do these guys really know what they're talking about? Was there a moment where you... Well, we know you came back to religion, and we kind of know how that happened, but was there a moment when you realized that maybe things were uh, a little bit different than even what you might find in the Bible? Because it, it seems like at some point you realized that there's actually real-life giants that existed on the earth. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it, it comes at it through the influence of, of Hal Lindsey. So what I did was I wanted to 
verify all of the prophecies in in the Bible and track them. So I went through the Bible, I don't know how many times, and rereading and rereading, and as I was reading, I would write down and catalog into different files all the different prophecy narratives. So, and then I, and then I was doing it, I was also cataloging other important things of interest to me in terms of doctrine and things like that. And when you do that sort of, you know, diagnostic approach to the Bible, which takes a long time, uh, you tend to look at every verse rather closely. And the odd thing that just kept coming up beginning in Genesis 6 were was the giants. And, you know, if it was just one sort of out-of-place verse, you know, at the beginning of the flood narrative, and you didn't really hear about it or any implications of them thereafter, you'd say, well, that's just very weird. And it is a very odd, strange, bizarre uh, set of verses, uh, you know, 6-1 to 6-4 in Genesis, but they just kept coming up. And I kept recognizing that these were all talking about the same people. And as I went through in further into the Bible and into the Exodus, they, they pop up again. And then when you get into prophecy and into Revelation, you get some hints at there's a connection back to the tie, the days of Noah. There's a connection back through demons to the giants. There's a connection back to the fallen angels. And you've got Jesus going into the, uh, the abyss to, when he's in the grave to talk to these spirits. And you've got Jude talking about, you know, the crimes of, of these angels that were sexual in nature. And so that led me to say, okay, I've got all of this stuff that's cataloged and I want to write a book. I'd like to publish some prophecy books. Um, so I think what I'm going to do was my plan was is I'll write a short book and I'll somehow write a book and see whether I can get published and I'll do it about trying to connect the giants of Genesis 6 to end time prophecy. But somewhere along sort of the, the road to the Colosseum, I got sidetracked and down all these different rabbit holes and it's probably going to be the longest book i ever write and uh, certainly i know that from a selling and a publishing challenge in terms of getting published you don't want to write huge books because it it's uh, it's a costly project so and how the how those rabbit holes opened up was is starting to marry up my other passions that i mentioned earlier with history and with mythology and uh then i added the next leg was, is, well, why don't I read in other religions out of their holy books what they might have to say about prehistory? And that just led me into a whole bunch of different rabbit holes. And as you're going down those rabbit holes, all of a sudden you run right into this secret society aspect that mm. is deeply connected all throughout history and even today with all of these different concepts that uh, are associated with fallen angels and the giants of, of, Je of Genesis 6. So it seems like um, you're not somebody who is unwilling to look at other cultures and other religious texts. No, I'm quite open to it. Um, but my advice, if you know, if there's Christians out there that are listening that um, are concerned about reading other scriptures is you need to be very, very well versed in scripture because some of the what they write can be very, very sort of seductive and uh, make a lot of sense. 
accept that there's always things that are missing. There's always nothing at the end, and it's not complete. It, it doesn't hit you the same way Scripture does. It doesn't grab you sort of the same way, but you can be sort of misled. So you need to be able to measure everything that it says in other accounts, whether it's mythology or legend or religion, and take it back to the Bible and say, does the Bible say that, or is that gone awry in, in a certain way and that you're able to recognize that. But if you can do that, you are able to get a significant amount of context and meaning that you may not have had before if your interest is in prophecy or if your interest is in prehistory or in history. Okay, I know that there's a part in the Bible where they talk about the Anakim, and I know about the part with David and Goliath. Are there yeah. any other passages from the Bible that you might be able to share with my listeners out there that talk about giants? Oh, sure. So there's many names of giants that come after the flood in, in the Bible. And Anakim is one of them, and that comes up in Numbers 21. And it says that they're the descendants of giants in the King James Version Bible, but in other Bibles, it'll say they're descendants of Nephilim. And that's because giants, when you take that word back to Hebrew, it's going to go back to Nephil or the Nephilim ones. So um, Anakim are descendants of Nephilim. But they're also said to be, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, part of a classification called the Rephaim. And the Rephaim, incidentally, are is the lineage that uh, if you take the word giant back when it's used in relationship with Goliath, goes back to Rapha or Rephaim. So he's definitely of the same bloodline. You've got uh, other names of tribes that are in the Bible. So you've got not just the Rephaim and the Anakim and the Nephilim that were before the flood, but you and the Rephaim and the Anakim are also after the flood. But you've got names like Horim, Amalekim, you've got Abim, You've got Emin, you've got Zamzuzim, you've got Horim, and more. So there's a lot of different tribes of giants recorded in the Bible that do not go back to what is known as the Table of Nations in the Bible, which is in First Chronicles and Genesis, and that's all of the descendants that perform that form the nations of the world descending from Noah and the three sons. So they come out of nowhere. And there's no explanation for them. And one of the most famous ones, other than Goliath, who's named in the Bible, is named Og. And Og is uh, one of the kings of the Amorites that's east of the Jordan River at the time of the Exodus. And he's considered in Deuteronomy and in Joshua as the, uh, as the last survivor, the remnant of the Raphaim. So he's Raphaim and he's considered the, the last of them, but that can't be quite accurate if in terms of that there are no more giants after that because when Israel crosses the Jordan, they're fighting the Anakim, they're fighting all these different Raphaim, and as I mentioned 400 years later, you've got Goliath who's a Raphaim, and there's more than one Raphaim that's amongst the Goliath at that time. In fact, there's several that David will run down and hit. And kings were the ones who were ruling the five city-state of Philistia at that time. And there were the Abim, as they were known in terms of uh, a branch of, of the Rephaim. 
And he had a brother named Sihon that's also killed by Moses in, in Israel at that time. And then you've got uh, Rapha, who is obviously the, the, the procreator of the Raphaim line. That is, is another giant. You've got Arba, who's the father of, of the Anak. You've got Telmai. You've got, um, I'm trying to think of a couple other names. But anyways, you get the idea that there are a lot, there's a lot more things going on in Genesis and the Old Testament with giants than first meets the eye. So David had to deal with more than just Goliath, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Poor um, guy. <laughs> there is at least five famous ones that were, were listed. But if you read the battles of David and his mighty men, like they're killing these giants all of the time in the Philistines. I mean, there's, there's many of them that they had not run out at the time of the Exodus. And that's one of the covenants of David is to finish the job of running out the giants from from the covenant land and, and surrounding area. And he is uh, crowned king, what, first for Judah, second for Israel, because there's two nations at that time, at a place called Kiriath Arba, which is named after Arba because he's the father of the Anakim. And Kiriath Arba is, is the sort of the home city for the giants, just as Siopolis or Bastian, as it was known, or Bethshane and Bethshay in other transliterations that is a little bit further north of where Kiriath Arba was, was another famous city of, of giants that um, descended down from Scythia that lasted even to the time of Josephus that was called Scythopolis. And so the name of that town today is called Hebron. So the, this is a very, very big impact that um, the giants had on the post-Diluvian world and the antediluvian world, and that there were significant numbers of giants that were not just sort of hanging about, but these giants usurped the kingships after the flood just as they had done before the flood. So when you get your royal dynasty starting to come down through history, these are the bloodlines of these original giants. So not all of them were wiped out by David and, and his fighting, fighting men. And at the time when David meets Goliath, he picks up five flat stones. And if God was with him that day, he probably wouldn't need five stones because there was only one warrior on the field. What he was concerned about was he had four other brothers that were kings of the other city-states that were all there. And there was more giants within the army, but he wanted to make sure that if he killed Goliath, which he did, that he would have enough stones to kill the other giants that were there. What's One thing that uh, I found interesting, uh, about half a year ago, I was bumbling around... Google and YouTube, and I, I learned about this Roman emperor named Maximum, Maximus Thraxus, and I guess he was like eight, eight foot six or something like that, just incredibly tall, like inhumanly yeah. tall. I, I have to wonder if he's one of them. Yeah. Well, and the Romans recorded many giants, so not just, you know, a few. I mean, these giants were around at the time of uh, of the Romans and the Thracians would be, you know, where most of those giants in the Romans' times um, that they had recorded. But um, yeah, that wouldn't be considered 
a huge giant. And, you know, a lot of people think that the word giant means in the Bible, you know, somebody that's seven feet tall at that time or maybe eight feet tall. And a lot of people say, you know, Goliath was only eight feet tall. But if you take the cubits, even on a common cubit, and I would argue you need to use the royal cubit, which is 21 inches versus the 18 inches of the common cubit because he was a king, that if you extrapolate his six cubits and a span, as I recall, is uh, the the measurements provided in the Bible, that would make him um, close to 10 feet tall and closer to 11 feet tall in terms of, uh, of a royal cubit. And Og's bed would have been um, 14 feet or 15 feet, so he would have been 12 or 13 feet tall. And in the book of Numbers, when it talks about the Anakim, it says that uh, the Israelites looked like grasshoppers or insects by comparison. And then in Amos, it talks about, you know, the Amorites who weren't purebred giants. They intermarried with the Raphaim, and these are some of the people that uh, Sihon and uh, Og were leading, uh, said that they were as tall as the cedars of Lebanon. And it's a bit of an allegory or an embellishment to say that because the cedars were that were in Lebanon were used to build all the ancient structures of the ancient world, and they were, you know, 40 to 50 feet tall. So I think that's probably a little bit outside the, the norm, but it's the comparison that is that you need to remember. And But from the original Nephilim, a lot of the researchers in the genre will say that these giants were 20 to 40 feet tall. So maybe there was some of them that were still that tall at the time of the Amorites, but I think that would probably fit better with a size that goes back into um, into the Antediluvian Epoch. But we get newspaper articles in North America between 1850 and, say, 1950 of discovering these giants, some as big as 18 feet tall. Lots of them are 12, 14 feet tall. Lots are 10 or 12. And uh, it's amazing how many giant bones were discovered, at least according to newspaper articles recorded. And I have a, I have a connection if people want to get a hold of me. I'll send you this website to these old newspaper stories uh, if they want to verify some of that. So these were huge beings, but they just weren't like these sort of tall, gangly monsters. Um, monsters, yes, but they were extraordinarily fleet of foot and dexterous, just as the Titans were described as. I mean, fabulous warriors, men of renown. Um, and so not only strong, uh, but they were stocky and muscular. So where the average height to width ratio of a human is generally thought to be about three to one whereas these giants were uh, recorded as two to one. So incredibly wide, incredibly fleet of foot. Uh, they had face-like vipers, um, and their eyes glowed. They had high cheekbones, protruding chins, and elongated skulls, and some depictions have them um, with um, longer necks, just as Anakim can mean in one of its meanings, long-necked. Uh, so these were extraordinarily large, powerful, warrior-type beings that were easily able to dominate humans that were, you know, a third their size or half their size. You know, you pick the size that you want for the average and at what period of time, but they were complete monsters compared to humans. Could some dinosaur bones actually be giant bones? 
You know, that, that's a that's a good question. I don't think so. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, there are not necessarily like, you know, like a Tyrannosaurus Rex type of bones being misconstrued, but they've got like mastodon bones that they're classified as mastodon bones that don't really fit that would be in that area for the size of some of these giants. So there, there is a case for that. And in my book, I cite a couple of, of those examples. So I think that's certainly a possibility that some of the bones have been misconstrued, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go too far down that path. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, I do remember seeing a movie that was very popular years ago called 300, and the leader of the opposing side, <laughs> I think they're the Persians, they were attacking yeah. the Greeks and the, um, yep. uh, you know, the good guys, the Spartans, yep. and their leader was a giant. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, king, king of Persia, right? Yeah. And as I mentioned, they, us- they usurped the kingships. And so all that they're doing in in that story of the 300 in the movie that you're referring to is just sort of depicting what mythology would say, even though secular history doesn't want to admit it, that this was a descendant of, of, of the giants. And he may have even had some extra size, you know, at that point in time in history, because as, as we've talked about, there is proof that the giants were actually taller. And if you look at how whether it's Egyptian kings or Mesopotamian kings, as you go back into, you know, not that far into into prehistory, but if you sort of get before, uh, say, 300 BC or so, uh, you get lots of depictions where the kings are significantly bigger than the subjects. Now, typically, how that's rationalized is, is well, that's just to inflate the ego and make them godlike and part of their imagination, part of their mythology. I don't think they did that. I think they recorded it exactly how they saw it. And, you know, another thing to look at in terms of uh, how they looked and, and the size of them and some of the elongated skulls, if you ever get a chance to go to a King Tut museum. Now, he's the son of a pharaoh called Akhenaten. And typically you're going to have an Akhenaten statue in a King Tut uh, uh, exhibit. And if you look at him, he's got that elongated skull I'm talking about. And a lot of times he's got a cap to cover his head. But he's got those high cheekbones. He's got those big uh, eyes that sort of wrap around a little bit uh, and are slight slanted as, as it gets to the edge. He's got a protruding chin, and he's got very much this serpent-like look. Now, do you... Do you prescribe at all to the ancient astronauts theory, Zechariah Sitchin, that type of thing? Well, I, I certainly like to, and I've read Sitchin, um, and I think he, he's done some wonderful work, and I love the ancient alien shows that are on the History Channel because I think they do very, very good work. They have a different belief system than me, but I think except for how they interpret it, I mean, I like their work. But they're talking about the same prehistory that's recorded all around the world. It's not, I mean, this prehistory just isn't recorded in the Bible. This is recorded in all cultures around the world on all continents. And they all tell a different story. And they've got these giants that are just known by different names. Now, these giants and demigods and the ones who create them in the alien mythos, is just a, really a difference in terms of understanding 
the the level of these beings are they a god or are they just a, an advanced and um, alien race so it's just it's almost it's not semantics but it's essentially just an argument as to how powerful these beings are uh, and of course i i look at them as fallen angels who produce demigods on earth it's just a sitchin you know would talk about the Igigi gods and the Anunnaki gods, and you've got the earthborn ones, and you've got the um, the ones who come from the planet, and they do a little bit of uh, DNA manipulation in there. But you know, they're they're known as the heroes or the titans in Greek mythology. You know, they're known in the subcontinent of India as the Danawa or the Datia or the Zura. Um, you've also got the Maiosi uh, and a few other names in China. And you've got the Anunnaki, of course, in, in Sumeria, the Mes- Mesopotamian um, uh, legends and mythologies and religions. And you've got the Tengu of Japan. And you've got uh, Zibalba of the Kishamaya and on and on and on of these different names. This, this is just a common historical record that's out there, a common history. It's just a matter of how it's being understood and what lens it is. And so the Bible is viewing it from a monotheistic lens. The other cultures around the world have a polytheist lens. And But they're referring to the same beings and the same pantheon of gods in the ancient alien mythos as referring to the same stories and utilizing those stories all around the world even though they don't always want to go back to the serpent sort of look of these procreators that are described, they kind of leave that a little bit short in terms of how they connect it. But other than that, I mean, their research is, is, is fabulous. Is there a worldwide cover-up slash conspiracy trying to hide any evidence that points to the existence of these giants? Oh, I think so. Um, and there's, you know, been a few groups uh, throughout history, particularly in the West, um, that tend to keep all of this information suffocated, if I can put it that way. And I don't think they've destroyed it. So you've had the Vatican for, you know, 2,000 years collecting these things um, all throughout history. And in a Catholic church, they don't talk about giants. So they're obviously not wanting to deal with it or they're trying to just, you know, keep that information hidden. You've also got the Royal Society and the Smithsonian in the West that work seemingly hand in hand. And of course, the Smithsonian reports to the Royal Society just as the money came from James Smithson, who was a Royal Society member. Um, and then it gets gifted to the United States through some uh, Masonic precedents to get it through Congress to set up the organization, just a quick history. But all of the bones that are discovered in the newspapers that I mentioned to uh, earlier that were, you know, are recorded in, you know, between about 1850 and 1950, they all go to a university or directly to the Smithsonian, and then they just disappear. So if you're going to understand giants, and if you're going to understand prehistory and you're going to understand what's going on in this world, in my opinion, in my research, you also have to understand secret societies because the Masonic society is as old as the beginning of these stories and is all sort of wrapped around this whole history. And also the Native Americans have a 
history of giants, don't they? A very, very, very strong recollection as part of their history, and they certainly would not call it mythology. And typically, they're talking about um, red-haired giants um, and, you know, large, you know, several tribes in different locations. And this is also goes right down through the Americas, Central America, and down into um, South America of these records of, of giants. But the ones that they're talking about in North America are the red-haired ones. And in the understanding coming out of the, the Middle East area for these legends, and I think, you know, some of the statues that are shown in Central America might suggest that there's uh, some other skin colors to the giants. But certainly from the Western perspective, they are uh, a very much a pale white color of skin. And they have two sort of significant branches. One is the typical noble Celt in what um, eventually Dracula is going to be based on is uh, pale skin, hazel eyes, and red hair. And that's kind of part of the Tuatha Danon as it comes down through these tribes and different types of um, names of giants through history. And from the Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England area. Um, and but also descending from Scythia as as the lords of Anu or the tribe of Danu, um, and I have all of that uh, cataloged in my book as well for people. And then there's the blonde-haired, blue-eyed sort of Aryan sort of look who migrated north into Russia, into Germany, and into Sweden, um, you know, forming those kingships and, and 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 ruling those nations. And so the red-haired ones seem to be the ones that came across from. Uh, either directly from the Middle East with red hair or um, from Ireland. And you've got, you know, more research being shown for cases for both. But when we look at some of the research that's coming out of the red-haired elongated skulls out of Peru, uh, they're showing a connection back to, uh, to Scotland and then back to Scythia. And Scythia seems to be sort of that centerpiece and where the giants from the Middle East and the promised land that we're talking about that are recorded in the Bible, they come from Scythia as well. And that's why you have that name, uh, Scythopolis, as, as a city of power, the house of power, the house of Shea, which is another connection to the Tuatha Danon with the word Shea, S-I-D-H-E. Does Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch, does he factor into this at all? Is he his own separate uh, lineage, or could some of these um, Nephilim possibly be sp spotted nowadays and be labeled as a Bigfoot? I, I think the Bigfoot in Sasquatch uh, is a completely different um, being. Um, again, it's, it's similar to the Nephilim uh, mythos and, and mythology. Uh, it, it seems to go way back into, into history. It's on all continents called by different names all around the world. It's, it's hairy like Nephilim are. Uh, it tends to, um, live in, in the woods and, and escapes into caves, uh, which, you know, which is the portal and the Shea connection, just as, you know, the fairies have these portal connections as well. And I'll, and I'll just connect those back in 
uh, in, in a minute. Um, so I think they're part of this greater Nephilim creation concept. And in the Bible, we're talked we're, it talks about before the flood with these fallen angels who procreate with human females. Is is that this causes not only the flood, but because of their what they did, it makes the whole world corrupt. And if you take that word, you know, again, back to Hebrew, and I'm a real fan of doing that in my research so that you can understand the full meaning of the word, is is that this corruption doesn't mean just violence, as what most people think uh, that, that causes the flood. This is the corruption of all of the animals and all of the plants, so the genomes, the DNA, and you get these stories coming out of prehistory that are talking about all of these fabulous different um Beasts that are created, and they're all created from these gods, right? And whether or not it's through a physical copulation or it's through some sort of DNA manipulation, they're all created from the gods. And so you've got things like centaurs and cyclops and hectateron giants and satyrs and chimeras and pegasus and uh, mermaids and on and on and on about these seemingly crossbred, cross-DNA pollinated sexually created, however they were created, these things are all around the world. And you've got elephant gods, and you've got just on and on and on about all these different types of, uh, of, of beings. And this is that violation against creation that the book of Enoch, I think, talks about. And that is creating these reprobate beings because you're putting the immortal spirit into uh, the Nephilim, um, and that's why God limits life to 120 years and generations going forward, again, coming out of Genesis 6, 1 to 4. And so and that's how you get this name demigods. And just as you get heroes, just to, to underline and, and, and sort of double tap that point, heroes in this ancient concept isn't, isn't the same idea as we recognize a hero as today, although it is reflected in the word superhero that is so popular today. Hero was, in its ancient meaning, the offspring of the gods and a human female. Now, these other beings, they didn't seem to have this immortal spirit, or they were created afterwards, or something else was going on, um, but they're different, and including the little ones. And so you've got three groups of elementals. And again, this is all over the world on all continents, except for Antarctica, when I say all continents, um, that they're in all legends, mythologies. They're not in the Bible, but again, very, very strong in North American culture. And you've got three groups of that. You've got the mischievous ones, you've got the good looking ones, and then you've got the ugly ones like the gnomes and uh the trolls and the goblins as, as being sort of the ugly ones. And so I think there was a lot of corruption going on in the antediluvian world um, that we're starting to get close to in our ability with technology. So uh, I think it was either done through technology um, or maybe, as in the legends say, these gods were having sex with animals to create these beasts, for, you know, for lack of a better word. Speaking of beasts, when did you first hear about the reptilians? Well, the reptilians are very, very um, well-known in, in alien mythos, and I'm a science fiction fan, too, so I'm not unaware uh, of the connections there, but 
you know, this understanding that the Nephilim uh, might be reptilian um, came out of the Gnostic Gospels. And so I wanted to bring that back uh, biblically to see whether or not I could, you know, verify that. And uh, there was, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the Gnostic Gospel, um, in Origin of the World, as I, as I recall, um, it describes uh, the archons or the uh, the angels or the gods uh, of the antediluvian epoch, known as Watchers, just as they're called in in the Book of Enoch. And I can take Watchers back into the Bible and and, and bring that back to angels as well. But how it describes them there was was that. Um, they were referred to as having long, narrow faces, prominent cheekbones, elongated jawbones, slanted eyes, and thin lips, and uh, had this very much a snake-like look. And in the dialogue of the Savior, uh, the Gnostic Gospels, it says the Archon referred to as the hostile rulers and the celestial mafia, and it goes on and gives a, a very much a similar um, description. And so I brought that back to the Bible using Isaiah 6, where it has the word seraph or seraphim, depending on which translation that you're using on, on the Bible. And that goes back to fiery serpent. And then all of a sudden, when you link that into descriptions around the world, as in the Atlantean mythologies or uh, into the offspring of the Nagas and the subcontinent, and the Nagas were a serpent-like god and their offspring in their... Uh, warrior class looked just like them. This is a common story that um, the offspring of the gods looked just like the gods. And then all of a sudden it starts to hit you that if you look at prehistory, you've got all of the gods being, for the most part, being represented as serpents. And there's a few exceptions like uh, the Anunnaki. Uh, there's some with have this bird-like look, just like in Japan you've got the Tengu that also have this bird-like look. But where I'm going with this is, is there may be a couple different kinds of, of looks to these, but the main one is the serpent mythology. And then if you connect that into, let's say, the Kishamaya, for example, and into North American uh, religions and, and legends, you've got Quetzalcoatl, who's the feathered serpent. Well, a seraphim angel who has the face of a fire, of a, of a viper, as, it, as, it's, as they're called fiery serpents, also has feathers, and this is a dragon look, as an angelic dragon, and it is also the same description as what they're basically calling um, uh, Quetzalcoatl and the, the other gods that would be named um, in other cultures in Central and South America that are essentially the same god as Quetzalcoatl, like Kantiki or Votan or Veracocha, just to name a few to to put some substantiation to that. And then you and you move over to the Chinese legend and mythology, which does come out of the subcontinent of India, but the dragons are the heavenly rulers and the creators, just as what they are in Japan. And then you look at all of the imagery around the kings who all take their genealogies back to these beings, um, and they're all referred to as serpents, just as Osiris is a serpent god, just as all of the kings of, of uh, Sumeria and Mesopotamia were considered serpent kings. And so this is a, just a one of those common 
world constants that is absolutely everywhere. And then even after the flood in North America, you've got like the Hopi and other Indian tribes who take their civilization being started from a race that survives off an island that is destroyed by a great flood, and they call them the White Snake Clan. So again, you've got the survivors uh, looking like snakes, just as the Atlantean mythologies, the Egyptian mythologies, and uh, the Kishimaya uh, legends, um, you've got all of these survivors after the flood looking like white snake people as well. So it's hard to ignore it after a while that you have to say that there's something to this reptilian look. And then there's another reptilian um, that I looked at that has a possibility. I don't have anything scripturally for how they would survive, but if you look at the Eden story in Genesis 2, uh, you have a Nakash or a serpent that is deceiving Eve to eat the apple, and then Adam's going to eat the apple as well. Well, we recognize that snake as what happens as a consequence uh, in terms of working with Satan or being coached by Satan to deceive Adam and Eve, and, and, and thus the fall of humankind in, in, in the Garden of Eden. But before this happens, uh, he, it has, and, and literally, he loses his arms, he loses its legs, it loses his voice, it loses his intelligence, and loses its position in, 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 in the kingdom. And in other religions and in other mythologies, this Nakash, the serpent, is considered of a kingly, um, or Magianic type status. And in the Gnostic Gospels, it was described as being as big as a camel. So it was bigger than a human, probably not as big as the Nephilim. And then when you connect back that you've got this word watcher that I was talking about that are the seraphim angels that are recorded in the Bible and are the sons of God of Genesis 6. And then you understand that um, the Urshu gods and the netter gods in Egypt, if you take that back to its meaning, it means watchers or who ones who watch. Um, just as if you take the word uh, dracon or draconta, which dragon comes from, um, out of Greek, that means to watch. And wow. so you've got all you've got all of these connections back to serpents and watchers and 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 gods and fallen angels. And at some point in time, you have to. At least I did. I just said, you know. There's, this just cannot be coincidence because it, it just, it's got to be almost a mathematical zero for, for that to, that to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of this, uh, this passage from one of the, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls about the Watchers. Uh, it's called the uh, Testament of Amran. And it, mm -hmm. there's a part where somebody in there, he's describing one of these watchers and he says something like his face is like a snake or an adder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly what it says. And and again, this, this is just, it's a common legacy around the world. You know, the, 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 the Nagas out of uh, India, um, that word goes back to cobra as opposed to uh, just being a generic snake. It's a cobra look. Uh, and uh, Sarpa is a Sanskrit word, which is the generic name in Sanskrit for snake. What's important about understanding the cobra look, that's what's also part of the Egyptian 
iconology. And when you see like uh, the pharaohs with that flared out uh, headdress, that usually has, uh, you know, uh, brightly colored stripes going uh, perpendicular to it. That is, is a representation of the, the head of a cobra with, you know, that, that neck flared out. And typically they've got a cobra on their forehead and in a few other areas on, on their dress as part of the iconology of the, of the royal bloodline. Snake, crocodiles, and dragons were known as the same being in antiquity or in prehistory. And also, Vlad Dracula, he was, uh, his name means the son of the dragon. Yeah, exactly. So Dracul is dragon. And you put the A on, that it means son of a dragon. And again, that is no coincidence. So he, you know, and that whole imagery is based on the Nephilim and the patriarchal allegories of the dragon bloodline. And so in the reptilian side of this, you have the patriarchal bloodline of the males as being allegorized as dragons and uh, or ravens. And the matriarchal side is owls and fairies. And so if we now link this back to, you can, I'll think this back to Vlad and uh, Nephilim and also back to, to Lilith, if, if, if you bear with me on this. Oh, we're going all uh, the way back to Lilith. <laughs> <laughs> Why not, right? Sure. Uh, so the Dracula figure is based on Vlad III, um, son of Vlad II, so Dracula and Dracula. And in 1439, uh, Vlad the Impaler was inducted into, you guessed it, the Ordo Dracanus um, by Sigmund of the Hungarian kingship. And this uh, organization was started in 1397 to start putting the dragon bloodlines back on the thrones because they were being pushed off in mainland uh, Europe. Wow. And, at th- and at this point in time, um, the House of Hungary, which uh, this is what I'm referring to uh, in terms of Zygamon, was also the Holy Roman Empire and the king of Jerusalem. And uh, he had two significant uh, iconologies in their coat of arms and, and depictions. So you'll see the double eagle of the Anunnaki, and you will see the double cross, which is the heraldic bloodline the House of Lorraine is more famous for, but it goes over to Hungary for a while. And then a few years after um, Zygamon dies, it goes back to Lorraine, to René, King René of the Lorraine region, who is a descendant of uh, the Knights Templar, and I won't take you down all of that, where King of Jerusalem title gets instituted in 1118 in a small priory in, on, on the Rock of Zion in Jerusalem. But anyways, so what they're telling you here is, is that they're going to base this bloodline on a royal noble Celt because his bloodlines go back to Scythia, just as Prince Charles takes his genealogy back to, to Vlad the Impaler. And he is, you know, called Dracula or Dracul, and um, he's part of the Ordo Draconis. And here's a little bit now about it 
the description of what he looked like. So he had fair skin, so that pale white skin I was telling you about. He had reddish hair, so the reddish hair of the noble Celt, a.k.a. Tuatha Dunan, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, and England. Green eyes, which are hazel eyes, and he was regarded as a noble Celt because he takes his genealogy back to the Scythians that we talked about earlier. And, of course, the Scythians were known as the dragon people, just as the Sarmatians were and the Amazons were. They're all part of the same group of, of people. He was educated at a mystery school of Solomon, so he's part of the mystical uh, sort of... Uh, Aspect and he's in this secret society, Ordo Draconis, uh, to, to put the Dragon Kings back on the throne and to pursue the pursuits of Thoth, which is the knowledge that was developed in uh, Egypt and parallel over in Mesopotamia, but that's another rabbit hole I won't go down today. Um, and he drank blood just as, um, you know, to in, enhance his, um, his brain qualities, his, his intelligence qualities, and hopefully to try and live longer. And just as Nephilim drank blood to do the same thing in the antediluvian epoch. And he was affected by sunlight, so he couldn't go out very much during the day. So he's very much a night operator. So this whole thing is is basically set on Nephilim who are against God and Christianity, as we come at it from a monotheist perspective, who is based on the bloodlines of the Nephilim and the, and the allegories of the Nephilim. Now, Lilith is um, also a, a Nephilim as she comes out of prehistory. Um, she's not a, an original god. She's an offspring of an offspring, so likely a demigod Nephilim. And what's interesting about uh, Lilith is that she is considered a Lamia, which is a blood-sucking demon or a female Upier. And Upier goes back to Scythian and, and Celtic words of Oberon, as in King Oberon of the fairies, which I'm not going to go down the fairy line, who is married to uh, Ty. Uh, Titania, which is another name for a hero and a Nephilim, um, and he's the king of the fairies, or the Tuatha Danon, as they take sort of those allegories back, and Uper, which is uh, also connected to Upiers as it goes back into um, into the Scythian language of the Black Sea area, just as Vlad was considered an Upier, and that's just an overlord or a pendragon. Uh, but anyway, she's, Lilith is a blood-sucking demon, a female upier, a night witch that flies at night like a screech owl, uh, as in Greek mythology labels her. And she's the killer of infants and has child sacrifice. And, uh, you know, you get the name Lilith coming out of the Bible um, from the word Lilith, L-I-L-I-T, which is, you know, sort of the original spelling of the Greek word for screech. Screech Owl, and this Screech Owl would hop on one foot like a goat, which again will get you back into occult allegories that I won't go into today. But where, where I'm going with this is, is that they both connect back to Strigoi, which is a Romanian word, um, which was popular for uh, vampire in Romania and in, into the Transylvania area. So we, now we're getting a link back in, into there. And the Latin word Strix also means Screech Owl, as in Lilith. And so these Strigoi's were, were vampires that flew at night as night witches or upiers and or vampires. So anyways, that's just a sort of very fast sort of quick history on uh, the Dracula connection to reptilians.
Awesome. Definitely oh, appreciate oh, and, that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, oh I was just going to say, and let's also put those cobra fangs on the, on, the, on the vampire Dracula just to finish the whole imagery. And also, I heard you earlier mention Pendragon. Is that is that similar to um, the King Arthur? Sorry, King Arthur type stuff. Oh, absolutely, it is. And you know, Pendragon is like head dragon or, or the king, and it represents that patriarchal bloodline. And so, King Arthur is actually a descendant of the Tuatha Dé Danann. That's uh, one of his bloodlines, just as. Uh, his wife Guinevere is a fairy queen, um, and uh, all of that name breaks down as you go into Old Celt back into fairies. And so, anyways, this is just again the same sort of bloodline, the same sort of story connecting the genealogies and the bloodlines. In this case, they're using the fairy allegory through Guinevere, even though you've got a Pendragon uh, aspect of King Arthur because his father is called Uther Pendragon. Right, So this is that same bloodline that's coming down. Now, what's interesting about this bloodline um, that they're talking about in King Arthur, it's the same bloodline that produces a daughter um, uh, out of King Lucius, whose name is Ergen, who is going to cross over and marry a person by the name of Aminabad of the Merovingian bloodline. Uh, and, of course, the Merovingian has a whole mythology about that and their royal bloodlines, but very much connected into these bloodlines out of King Arthur and the Nephilim bloodlines. One thing that gets me a little mixed up, I got into the uh, David Icke books years ago, and he seems to think that the Anunnaki were all reptilians, and there's uh, you know, various people out there that think that that's completely false. They weren't reptilians. They were giants. They were something else. Um, were they Anunnaki? Were they all reptilian aliens? Well, I wouldn't view them as aliens, but that would be one interpretation of them as, 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 as aliens. The Anunnaki are described by the people who recorded them in Mesopotamia as their gods. And you had two levels of Anunnaki. You have the heavenly Anunnaki and you have the earthly Anunnaki. So the earthly Anunnaki are just Nephilim giants. It's another name for Nephilim or Titan. And these were the ring lords uh, and the kings of the of the antediluvian world in Sumeria and related areas. So yes, they were um, reptilian. And you've got Oannes, who is looked at just as Dagon as a fish god, but as they get more into the research is that it shouldn't be more of a fish god. It should be more of a reptilian god that comes out of the seas that is going to provide civilization and knowledge. So you've got two different sort of branches, both reptilian, and then you've got these feathered Anunnaki, which is that sort of different uh, breed as well because they've got more of that raven face. And as, as if you recall, as I was talking about the bloodlines of the patriarchal blind, uh patriarchal bloodline, you've got the dragon allegory, and you've got the raven allegory. So that's what's being represented there. So this is why uh, you were kind of alluding to this earlier, that a lot of religions and different faiths and mythologies, they have um, these beings that have, like in ancient Egypt, for example, they have different types of animals for their faces, or the bottom part might be an animal, stuff like that. 
Yeah, there's uh, something, there's more going on than just being the seraphim, fiery, um, viper-looking face. Um, so because you do have these other beings, and you also have recorded in India and in the Bible and in other places around the world that there was another race of lion men that seems to go back to the angel or god Ariel because he had the face of a lion and you've got all these depictions of lion men and lion gods throughout Egypt and Mesopotamia uh, and also recorded even after the flood at the time of David's mighty men part of the people he's wiping out which is another reason why I think that they are um Nephilim, because they're described as mighty ones as well, which is Gibberim, which is sort of the same description that Nephilim are going to be described as in, in, in the Bible. And as you say, you've got these sort of uh, dog-like looking beings um, as well. So in, in Egypt, even though the parent gods seem to be the Ogdod, uh, which are the reptilian level. And again, in, in if not to bore the audience, I hope here, but in most of the pantheons around the world you have two sets of gods so you've got like the ogdo gods which are sort of the parent gods in egypt and below that then you've got like the serpent god of osiris and isis and horus as being the sun after that or in um greek mythology you've got like chronos and gaius and other um serpent-like gods who are the parent gods to gods like poseidon or um, Zeus and the Olympian gods. And just as you've got Anu as the parent god for the Anunnaki, um, and he's going to be the father to Anki and Onlil and again all of those other second level of gods. And El in Canaan is the father of Baal and um, Mot and uh, a few other gods as well. So you've got sort of that sort of parent god and then you've got these other lower level gods. And it's the second level of gods like Osiris or Baal or Zeus uh, or Anki, who produce the earthborn demigod. So it's that second group that then goes one step further, seemingly to um, corrupt the laws of, uh, of, of uh, corrupt the uh, laws of creation. Um, just as in the uh, Egyptian mythology and legends. Uh, and religion, you have a female lioness goddess called Bast, and she's the goddess of witchcraft and lust and sexual behavior, and is the one who is accredited for opening Pandora's box of creating all of these beasts uh, and, and that we see in prehistory, at least from the Egyptian lens. Yeah, this is this is all very so very fascinating. I know that there was some sort of race of dog faced people that existed uh throughout the past and they were even renowned for having a very skilled army and they would wear the same armor and use the same weapons as the humans of the time and they were feared by the humans. Yeah, I, I keep getting asked to uh, do shows on the dog people. I got to look into them. I've not spent any time on them, but there seems to be again a whole sort of mythos that goes right throughout the generations uh, about uh, about the dog people. So I think it's probably like 
um, the Nephilim, and it's probably like the lion men, because the lion men were great warriors. And, um, you know, the uh, Tengu, which were those bird-like ones, they also produced warriors and a priest class that looked like them as well. Hmm. So um, lots of different stories uh, that go hand-in-hand at the same time of the creation of the serpent-like uh, Naga-type warriors and kings or the um, the Nephilim serpent kings. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it because, I mean, the, what we're taught as kids is, in my opinion, we're taught that the history of this planet, we're taught it in a very boring way, in my opinion, and uh, the truth very well might be that there are all kinds of creatures on this planet, intelligent creatures with all sorts of different looks and physiologies, and I find that to be a lot more interesting and a lot more fascinating than the, than the textbook typical way of uh, teaching people about history. I, I agree with that, and I would include, you know, the various elves. I mean, if you look at Tolkien's Ring Lords or the Lord of the Rings, I mean, he's, he's got all sorts of little people in there, you know, like the hobbits and, and the dwarves, and um, and he's just sort of piecing away at it. And then you've got the noble elf in there, right? And that is um, more or less going back to the Tawatha. They don't show him as a, uh, as a giant, but that's what that, that allegory is depicting. And it's a pre-flood story because at the end of the trilogy, you see these different beings sailing away. And, and the reason given is, is now it's the time of man. And oh. so they sail away. And that's, that's kind of the allegory of, of, of the flood. Um, but I think Tolkien was reflecting, you know, the Norse fairy ideology onto on, onto the prehistory and giving us a glimpse at what some of the other cultures believed what happened in prehistory. Do you believe that these reptilians might be behind modern-day alien abductions? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. Um, and it's been, again, depending on, you know, who these reptilian aliens actually are, um, there certainly seem to be part of that sort of hierarchy of the aliens. But um, let me give you um, a connection into aliens and what I've been talking about, these other beings that were created before the flood and what I was just talking about in terms of Tolkien. So... I, I talked about the ugly class of fairies um, as part of the three groups of the elementals. And in that classification, there's one called the gnomes. And in the gnomes, uh, and all of these little people had a specific job or purpose as they were created for. So like as you see reflected in Lord of the Rings, you've got the dwarves that they're kind of like miners and live in mountains and create tools for the gods. That's quite common throughout uh, the fairy mythology. The gnomes guarded the knowledge and the genealogies and the technology. And so I put in my book a encounter of fairies uh, and these are gnomes um, who come through portals, uh, fairy shays, fairy mounds, um, and they come through with these flying machines. And this is this is an ancient account. It's probably four or five hundred years old. The the account I put in, in the book, and they kidnap people for a fortnight, and they do experiments on people, 
both sexually and scientifically, and they're trying to reinvigorate their bloodline, and then they return them after a fortnight or, or 14 days. And the description that I provide of these uh, gnomes um, are an identical description to the gray aliens. And in fact, they call them the greys or the gray neighbors, but they're always attached with a gray and the description is all the same. And then I do another one that's in South America. Um, and if you didn't know it was a fairy abduction, you'd swear it was a gray alien abduction. So if part of that has been going on through prehistory and people or throughout history and people understanding it at the technology and the knowledge level that they had as fairies and actually they have this this te- highly technology, technologically advanced flying uh, machines and, and technology. Um, how many other ones might have survived coming out of prehistory? And I make a case in, in the book, and I like to talk about that. The technology that was before the flood, it was as great as what we have today and likely even greater. And biblically, I back that up because in Jesus' second coming, it's going to be um, like the days of Noah. And we have not hit the end of days yet, and Jesus hasn't returned yet, and we're not in the end times quite yet. So that means that the case that I'm making is, is then likely the technology had to be more advanced in the antediluvian epoch than what we have today. And this comes from two sources. You have the knowledge coming from the gods or the angels, being married with the seven sacred sciences as the secret societies like to talk about, which are the seven liberal arts today that are taught in school, that they took to a whole new level with the help of of, of the fallen angels that helped corrupt the whole world. So they were able to build, and they actually credit Enoch, son of Cain, not Enoch, son of Jared, there's two Enochs, um, with um, providing the knowledge to build the pyramids. And just as you get a... Uh, relief that depicts the 52-degree pyramid um, on the many uh, stellar relief that goes back to 3000 BC, which predates the construction that standard Egyptologists will uh, cite at 2400 BC. This is 3000 BC. And so this is the knowledge that they had developed through this Enochian um, knowledge. And then it's developed into what they call the seven sacred sciences. Uh, and so Enoch is one of Masonry's greatest patriarchs because this is also when the secret societies that I mentioned earlier are founded through this knowledge. Just as the mystical religions are founded, the secret societies are founded in partnership to develop certain aspects of it. And so Tubal Cain, Nama, Jubel, and Jubal are also significant patriarchs for Freemasonry and Jubel because he actually develops the fifth science, which is geometry and called in the craft or the secret societies as Masonry and develops that at a whole new level in this sort of, uh, uh, sort of second sort of explosion of, of, of knowledge that happens, uh, with the progeny of Lamech. Again, Lamech of the Cain line, not of the Seth line that I'm talking about here. And just as Nimrod is considered the first grand master of Freemasonry after the flood, who utilizes the knowledge that Hermes finds to partner with the build Babel and, and the Tower of Babel. So, Masonic history goes back to this technology that was brought by the gods. And in the mythologies around the world, they all talk about 
cities being built by the gods that they inherited, and then the gods taught them everything after that. And this sort of helps to explain how you have, like, the Mayan calendar, the, I'm sorry, the Aztec calendar that was created that is, 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 you know, we only in the last few years have had the ability to have that kind of knowledge of, uh, ast- you know, astronomy and, and how the eclipses and things are, are, are coming about. So I kind of did a bit of a long-winded thing there, but I just wanted to get more context around what I was talking about in terms of the technology and in terms of the beings that were created in the past and that they probably had a higher level of technology than what we have today, which would account for why if they were able to survive and go through portals and in other dimensions, um, you know, how they were able to have uh, flying saucers or spaceships or interdimensional crafts, whatever you want to call them. Now, do these these reptilians do they come from space, inner Earth, or another dimension? Yeah, I think they're coming from another dimension. Um, the portal aspect is just way, way, way too common. I'm only speculating on this, obviously, um, but I think that's the that's more likely. Um, as opposed to, I think what we're going to be told though when we get this complete. Um, you know, introduction to the aliens, and there'll be many probably different kinds, just as what we see shown in like Star Wars and or Star Trek, um, that, you know, we're just one of many species in, 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 in the galaxy or in the universe, and, you know, we're going to have to uh, join them in their fight against this other force that's out there um, if we want our freedom. I think that's what they're going to offer. And everything that you see in the alien mythos is still duality of, of good aliens, bad aliens, um, but they're an equal uh, good and evil. They're an equal sort of levels of force, and they're always perpetually at war throughout eternity. And that's the dualistic part of the mystical religions as well. So I think that's what we're going to see when we get in an encounter, what do they call it, the fourth kind? Are these underground bases I hear about with reptilian and human joint operations, are they real? Well, I don't think we have enough information to prove that they're real. I think it's likely that they're real. Um, We're certainly hearing lots of accounts about things like that. And you see um, a lot of different things being attached to it. So you see different kinds of aliens, and you hear about the word Anunnaki uh, again, and you hear about reptilians, and you also hear about the Nephilim in these underground bases and stuff, just as you've got going on in Antarctica today. So I think that is, and from what I think about how the end time is going to come about, I think that has to be true on, as, as I deduce this and put it together because I think it's part of what the Christians and, and how I would understand part of end time prophecy with the great deception and the great delusion that's going to come out in the end time. And on that note, do Satanists and Luciferians run the world from behind the scenes? Yep. Simple answer is absolutely yep. yes. And, <laughs> and of course, you know, Satan is the great serpent, right? He's the dragon. 
he's he's uh, um, part seraphim uh, and also part cherub. I think he was demoted from cherub to to seraphim, but uh, he is reptilian as well, isn't he? Yeah, my show has been focusing on exposing a lot of the uh, Luciferian and satanic connections that that are out there. That's something that I've been doing recently. And when you really get into it, it's really scary because you realize this stuff is real. And, and they might be behind a lot of the music industry and some of our favorite bands. Yeah, there's a, there's an influence in in so many aspects, whether or not it's in music, whether or not it is in the occult literature, like in the Tolkien literature that I was talking about, or it's in science fiction. You, you get this all throughout our literature and our, and our entertainment and influence. And typically, you have you have, and if you're going to get into this rabbit hole, you need to sort of understand that this partnership goes back to prehistory, right? So as I talked about, you've got the knowledge aspect and the sciences, you've got the secret societies, you've got the priests and the religion aspect of it, and you've got the bloodlines or from the original Nephilim and the royal families as they come down through history is all sort of working together. And so they do operate from the shadows and are controlling things because they do want to bring about the end time and a rendezvous with destiny because in their belief system, they want to uh, have this showdown with uh, the God of the Bible and win the freedom. So uh, I think all of this is going to probably come about in the not so distant future, um, but we'll have to wait and see. What about these people that say, all alien sightings are demons. It's always a trick if you're abducted, if you see a spaceship, if you have a close encounter with the third kind. It's always a demonic trick. Yeah, I think that's an oversimplification. And I think uh, you, you can make a case that um, some of the aliens are a, a demonic uh, force. Uh, demons would be, when I use that word demon, that would be... Um, like a bodiless spirit of uh, a giant. Um, so when we talk about demonic, that means they've either taken on another shape or they are a Nephilim-type creation that's a violation against creation that we talked about earlier. And in this case, one of them might be, you know, the gray fairies as, as a gray alien. But uh, angels also have the ability to shapeshift. And the gods did, as we understand, coming down through prehistory as well. So they can take some different forms. So I think you have an aspect of them interplaying as part of the alien mythos. But I think there's too many um, that are recorded as beings throughout prehistory that seem to show up in the alien mythos. I mean, you can even make a, an argument that um, Shabaka, as it's, as, as it's depicted in Star Wars, it would be very similar to Bigfoot, right? And again, yeah. we talked about kind of a close association of, of that particular strain of being with Nephilim. So I think there's more that were survived either in the Earth or off the Earth, um, and that have been around uh, since before the flood and have great technology. I think that's part of it as well. How about these claims that when nobody's around, the queen shapeshifts into a reptilian? Yeah, I think that comes out of the Ike aspect, doesn't it? But sure does. <laughs> um, 
I, you know, again, we don't really have any proof of this, but if, if you want to take that back to how would that be possible? Well, if the angels have the ability to shapeshift when they come into the physical world and take a sex and a form of their choice, and if they did have offspring and they did pass on in the initial generation the immortal spirit, and if they did pass on other traits like great dexterity and size and their looks, what other traits did they pass on? So if you wanted to make a connection that you could say that shape-shifting ability um, may have been passed on. That's the only way that you could do it. My preferred position on it is is that I think over time, even though they tried to keep their bloodlines pure, they've had to introduce a lot of human bloodlines and they become uh, have become basically the same size and similar looks, even though they've got pure bloodlines than you know most of the other humans because they've been trying to integrate and keep those bloodlines pure. And it's still part of their family traits. Did these beings, uh, the giants and the reptilians and some of the other ones, did they have any sort of higher abilities, any sort of psychic abilities? You know, we don't get that. Um, all we get is is that they were very powerful beasts, uh, very powerful kings, very powerful warriors, and very fleet of foot, very dexterous. But we don't... Um, we don't learn that they had these interdimensional aspects and things like that. So where all of that sort of comes back, and again, understand that organizational structure we're talking about. So when we talk about prehistory and the mystical religions, and you'll notice that there's always like a wizard, which is sort of, or a magi, which is sort of that priest class that is developing these sciences and the magic that goes with it and the technology that goes with it, complete with the mystery schools and the secret societies. So I think that technology and knowledge was developed on that side of the organizational structure, and the kings or the Nephilim made use of that. It sounds like the Freemasons are playing a large role in all of this. They're playing a very large role in it. Um, They have their own specific agenda. They are part of the intermix, and they're not as high up as some of the other organizations are. And in fact, they are taking a lot of the people and you have to be invited to join. So they're being brought into the occult society at lower levels and being initiated uh, to the various degrees, whether it's three degrees of the old system of the York Rite or the 33rd degree of the Scottish Rite. And you become an adept where you get initiated into the Luciferian um doctrines only at the 33rd or 3rd degree level. Um, But above that, you have the Illuminati, which is at the center of the Freemasons. And then above that, you've got the Rosicrucians, which about half of them are part of the purebloods. And then you've got, going into the Rosicrucians, um, organizations like the Illuminati, like the uh, Freemasons reporting to, like the Bilderbergers, like the Bohemian Grove, like the Club of Rome. So it's the Rosicrucians which have more of that secret society influence. And the the Rosicrucians break off from the Templars who we talked about earlier in about 1188 at the cutting of the elm, and then the Templars are totally broken up in 1307. And after that, you get the establishment uh, because you have the Rosicrucians who were also the ones who formed this Ordo Drocanus, 
that I talked about in 1400. They also form the Freemasons uh, through the Templars because it's the same organizational group and you've got the Rosicrucians as a separate organization already. They form the Freemasons and you have also the Royal Society that is going to be um, um, organized in about 1660 and chartered in 1662 between the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians, and you're going to have the Jesuits being reformed back inside the Catholic Church with their agenda because the Templars were disassembled in 1307, and you have to have the banking arm of the Templars as well. So the Bauer family of Germany uh, is set up to become the banking arm who changes their name to Rothschilds in 1812 when they set up the London Bank. And so you've got a lot of that sort of organizational structure of the Templars dispersed so that you can't be all taken down at once as what King Philip and the Pope did in 1307. Wow, that that is so fascinating. I, I had no idea that things were so interconnected, and you really laid out the entire picture very well. Yeah, and their belief system is, is that um, their bloodlines, and of course the more pure they are, the higher up you're going to be, it goes back into prehistory back to the demigods, back to the Nephilim, and back to the fallen angels. So that when you have an angel in Roslyn Chapel, which is built by William Sinclair, who uh, is the one who takes over and sponsors Freemasonry after um, the Templars are, are disbanded in Scotland, he builds Roslyn Chapel, and he's got this one, many, many... Uh, statues and sculptures in there, but I'll, I'll describe one, and it's this angel who's hung upside down, and he's got this sort of rope leading away that's in form of either a stylized S or a Z, and he's got this uh, necklace of pearls, and the, the pearls of wisdom, uh, which is the knowledge that, uh, as in the Book of Enoch states, that was given to the descendants of Cain um, before the flood. And this is Azazel, or Azazel. Uh, the leader of the Watchers, uh, who is decoded. And everything they do is linking themselves back, just as the Sinclairs are one of these famous bloodlines. actually goes back to Rolo, um, and they change their name to St. Clair after they expropriate uh, Normandy in France, and it's the Treaty of St. Clair that they take the name of. And this is... Uh, you know, the one of the, the founders who isn't listed in the founding of the Knights Templar, but he's the battle partner of Hugh de Payon, and this is uh, Henry St. Clair back in 1090. So anyways, I'm just giving some examples of how it intertwines, but they are part of this pure blood religious secret society uh, partnership that goes back into prehistory and who are trying to bring about world government. So our... Some humans, or maybe all humans, actually hybrids then? Oh, definitely. Um, and, you know, there's been hybrids all through through history, and some more pure than others, like the Amorites, as we talked about, who King Og and Sihon um, ruled over. They were considered uh, significantly taller than the average human because they intermarried with the Raphaim. So um, there are many, many hybrids. Some people believe that the RH negative bloodline, which most of the royals have, is the bloodline of the Nephilim. And there is about 15% of the world's population that has RH negative blood. 
Um, so that suggests there has been a dispersion, and you get very little of it in uh, certain parts of the world, like in, in Asia for some reason. Heavy concentrations in Europe and very heavily more concentrated as you get into France. And then the highest concentration was, was with the Basques. Some people pronounce it Baziki, um, and they have as high as 80% RH negative. And they say they are, they call themselves Homo Atlantis, and they were the ones who settled Egypt, Scythia, and Mesopotamia after the flood. And, of course, they were, they've had this diaspora because they were pushed out by the bloodlines moving from the Middle East and into Europe. Um, I guess there was some sort of internal squabble as the Basque mythology goes. Is it true that these giants and reptilian creatures and, and perhaps some of the other ones we've been discussing as well, is it true that they actually drink blood and or eat human beings? Well, uh, if you're going to be involved in a blood-drinking ritual or a cannibal-eating um, ritual, um, you're going to be an adept. Um, so it's not done at the lower levels. So you have to be at least an adept of Freemasonry and higher and probably a little higher still. But um, I can't say I've witnessed it, but it is sort of common understanding and knowledge of people who have turned away for whatever reasons from um, those mysteries and, and rituals that say that it still goes on today. Um, I have a friend uh, who... Uh, has been saving people out of these uh, clutches of the people uh, who are um, almost imprisoned almost um, by the secret societies for these rituals. And they live a very dangerous life freeing people. He also does uh, some public speaking on it as well. And uh, the, the stories he tells uh, coming from these people that they save are just absolutely horrific. Yeah, uh Unfortunately, I've I've heard about the same phenomena from many different angles. These uh, escapees of these extreme situations of abuse and all kinds of strange stuff going on behind closed curtains, shape shifting and magic and just unbelievable things. Yeah, and, and we shouldn't be surprised because that's all part of what was said happened in prehistory as well. It was always part of that religion. It was always part of it, whether it's magic, whether or not it's drinking of blood, whether or not it's sacrifice. And they have that polytheist religion that, you know, descends out of there. And so why would you think that that may not have carried through? Especially when they believe that they are superior to humans. How do you see this whole end times, end of day scenario actually kicking off? Well, uh, you know, a lot of people get way ahead of themselves on this. So there's some, from a, from a, I'll speak from a Christian perspective that there are some big stumbling blocks. I think we're getting closer, but you have to have from a Christian perspective prophetic perspective, you have to have the universal religion in place first, uh, Babylon, which brings about world government, uh, which will bring about Antichrist. And part of that is is that 
the Jewish people are going to have to be able to can, uh, start up their uh, ritual sacrifices on a wing of the temple, as Daniel talks about. So there's a, only one way for that to happen is either the Muslims are going to permit it somehow, some way, or the mosque is not actually on where the Holy of Holies was uh, actually situated, and it's slightly further off, closer to the ravine, uh, and, and which would be accurate to what how Josephus described where the temple was of the Temple of Herod. So that has to start. So those are three big stumbling blocks, world government, universal religion, and uh, the Jews permitted in the temple to do their sacrifices. So that's why the universal religion has to come first. So until that happens, um, we're not going into the end time. And then the other thing is, is as, as hard as the globalists and the secret societies and all this leviathan of organizations set up to bring it about, according to biblical prophecy, there's an ordained time. And until the restrainer is removed, it can't happen. Now, they're ready to go, and they'll try and bring it on at a date that's not the ordained time in the Bible, but they will accept the ordained time because they want this rendezvous with destiny. But these are big things that have to come to play. So we're going to need to see some significant things move us in that direction. So one would have to imagine significant catastrophes like nuclear war, um, alien abductions, um, apocalyptic things to drive people into this. And so we're going to need to see that show up first from a Christian perspective. Are schools a part of this? Are children being taught things that are just wrong? Is there some sort of movement behind the scenes to turn the entire world into an atheistic, materialistic type of thing? Well, the atheistic thing is short-term because if you buy into the fact uh, that it's these organizations and religions and bloodlines, they have a religion. So this is just a temporary thing to break down Christianity and lead them away. And the teachings that they're doing in schools and, and universities and the literature and the entertainment lead people away from God and discredit God um, and prepare them to accept the lie that is coming. And it's preparing them to be globalist citizens in nature. And they're fed significant misleading information that transcend borders to drive them into a globalist ideology, whether or not it's an apocalyptic nature of global warming or fear we're going to be blown from the face of the earth with nuclear weapons. All these things are designed by uh, the secret societies to prepare people to accept this notion that that's the only way we're going to survive. And so, yeah, for sure, our kids are being misled and prepared for this. A lot of a lot of people, not even just Christians, right now they are prepping. They're preparing very hard. They're hoarding MREs. They're buying weapons, bullets. They're making sure they have a place to go to the bathroom. They're, they're making sure that they have everything if something does happen. Do you advise taking that route and doing some prepping, or should we all just be trying to get ourselves spiritually right instead? 
Yeah, I think you should get you should get spiritually right. Um, you know, anything that you're going to, you know, if things get into that apocalyptic nature, if you've got weapons, they're going to try and take your weapons. If you've got food, people are going to try and overwhelm you and take your food. Um, so when you have that size of, of cataclysm, then it, it's hard to think that you can just sort of bunker yourself down and people aren't going to be looking for you. And so I, I mean, so I would say get right spiritually. And the main thing is, is to, you know, we have free choice. So people have to choose what they want to believe. And there's so many people in this world that sort of go along with the flow, right? And they're not really trying to critically analyze anything or make any firm decisions. You need to make a choice in life what you believe. And you may choose wrong or you may choose right. We won't know until it all plays out. But my advice is learn as much as you can, ask hard questions, and choose spiritually what you think is is, is right. Um, and uh, even as, as Christians, there's going to be Christians deceived in, in the end time as well, because even the elect are going to be deceived. So that's why you have to be prepared. Awesome. And unfortunately, we are headed towards the end of tonight's interview. But Gary, I wanted to open things up just one more time, let you get back up on that soapbox and go ahead and say whatever you would like to say to my audience out there. And please, by all means, follow that up with anything you would like to plug, websites, upcoming projects, uh, appearances, anything at all that you'd like to plug, including social media. Sure. I think you know, the thing I'd like to leave the audience with is that there's a hidden history um, that's kept from us, and it's a common history, and it has everything to do with where our future is going. And so some of the things that, you know, we've been talking about tonight might sound out there. I've spent a lot of research on this, and I've connected it. Uh, in, in, into one book so that people can, can follow it. It's, it's written from a Christian perspective, of course, but, um, it talks, you know, it includes all this information that I've been talking about from mythology and religions from around the world. So you can make your own choice on that. But my, what I'm saying is, is that start looking into this because it's, it's very, very, very important, particularly as we seem to be coming along with this sort of date and destiny to have this full encounter and a full introduction to whatever this alien phenomena is. And even then, you know, my thought process is, is you better be very careful what you're believing, what they're telling us, because again, your discernment's going to have to be on high and you need knowledge to do that. So, but my own perspective is, is, is we all have to make our own decisions. So do your research and, and make your decisions as we go forward. And if somebody wants to get a hold of me, uh, you can get a hold of me through my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on that website, you can uh, email me if you have a question, and I will get back to you if you if you ask me a question. I also have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of my book. If you want to have a look at that, you'll get a good feel for it. If you want to get a signed copy, you can order it through the website. There's also links to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, 
barnesandnoble.com uh, if you want to order from them because they will be a little bit less money than me. And uh, you can also get it in Kindle format if you want a digital copy. It's also available through most online bookstores. And if you wanted to order it through your local bookstore uh, and support them, it's distributed through Bookmasters so they can easily purchase it uh, from Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania. You can, again, follow me, and I put out a provocative uh, post and blog uh, once a week. Um, on Facebook under Gary Wayne, I have two Genesis 6 conspiracy pages where I also post those blogs. And I also have a group on Facebook called Gary Wayne, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And again, you can get a hold of me on Facebook. And you can also follow me or get a hold of me on Twitter at GaryWayne63 at GaryWayne63. Awesome. Uh, Gary, I had a great time talking to you tonight. We really went deep into the rabbit hole, learned some amazing new things. You are so very well researched, and I would absolutely love to have you on this program again so we can follow up and talk about whatever else you're researching or into. Sure, I'd love to come back. I just love talking about this stuff and getting the information out. So I tend to be very generous with the information because it's more about just informing people and raising their level of curiosity. Sweet deal. Uh, definitely, curiosity is one of my favorite things, sharing knowledge and soaking it up. It can be very addicting. And until next time, Gary, thank you so much for joining me here on End of Days Radio. And until we talk again, you have a good night, my friend. Thank you. And there you have it. That was Gary Wayne. Oh, my God. Fascinating, fascinating. Oh, my God. My brain is just, like, bleeding at this point. My underwear are melting. I am just having a complete breakdown. It was just a load of incredible information. He was connecting all sorts of dots, tying things together, just really blowing my goddamn mind. Blowing my mind, man. He just blew my mind. It's fascinating. <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a short break, or, or more like a long break, because i got a wee. And I'm going to go wee, and I'm going to eat some sushi. I'm prepared tonight. I'm going to eat some sushi, drink a little bit more of this caffeine, and I will be back, and I'll be on the attack as well. Hello! How annoying. Hello. <laughs> Don't you hate when people do that? Like you walk into their house, they're all like, hello. <laughs> hello. I'm going to do that every time we come back from break from now on. Hello. As I walk down the street and I pass by people. Hello. Hello. How long until I'm universally hated? Maybe I am already universally hated. Doesn't sound so bad. I did get in a little bit of a, I'm not sure what you would call it, a little bit of a skirmish on Twitter earlier, arguing with another liberal. Those liberals, they just, they come at me, bro. They come at me. There's always one in the mix. Like, most of them are just like, this guy's stupid. I'm just going to ignore him. But one of them always takes the bait. Right? For whatever reason, that day they're just in the mood to fight. But hey, I don't sit there and get in long, protracted arguments with people. I make my point and then I move on. I've got better things to do. 
If we can't come to an agreement, if I can't convince you, then so be it. I've got things to do, and people that argue on the Internet, well, they're stupid. I'd say they're retarded, but you can't say that word anymore. But they're stupid. I've been there, trust me. I I got in like a three-month argument with a guy over the Internet before, and that's <laughs> that's the experience that changed me. Not only did I stop having pointless arguments on the internet, but in life in general, I stopped having so many pointless little conflicts. You gotta know when it's worth it. All wars are wars of attrition. It's the art of war by Sun Tzu. You guys ever listen to that audiobook <laughs> or read it? Um, you know, these, uh, Businessmen, business people, I should say, they always talk about reading the art of war for their hot corporate job or their business position or whatever the hell they do. They say you read the art of war and it's going to give you an edge, right? I read the art of war and I listened to the audio book and I definitely think, like the Bible, that particular book applies to back then, but is harder to interpret in today's day and age. I mean, there's some good stuff in there, don't get me wrong, but I really think somebody needs to write an updated version of that book with real-world examples that people can actually use. I don't think picking the battlefield and making sure the conditions suit me is really a good way to set up a business meeting. <laughs> Guys, we're going to meet out in the mud. Why? Because it will slow you down and give me an advantage. Why would I want an advantage? Shut up. You're fired. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, no, I've never fired anybody. I've never been in a position to. I don't really like being in charge of people. I don't like giving orders. I'm not trying to lead this revolution. Only ignite it. I wish to walk hand in hand. As brothers. I'd be a shitty leader anyways. I'd get you all killed. I can't do it. <laughs> Follow me. Come on, guys. Charge. Oh, shit. We're dying. <laughs> uh, okay. So I watched the new Roseanne show. For those of you that aren't aware, Roseanne, the original. What station was it on? Was it ABC, NBC? Ugh, I should know this. The original Roseanne show. Roseanne Barr also known as Roseanne Arnold, because she married Tom Arnold. Really funny show. Hilarious show. Uh, that was one of my favorites. I, re I remember I'd come home from school, and I'd watch whatever sitcoms they'd have, and Roseanne was always on. Up here in the Seattle area, I think it was Channel 11. KS KSIW? Something like that. And Roseanne was always on there. And... uh What's her husband on the show's name? John Goodman. Great actor. He was in Fallen. But, oh my god, that show was so underrated at the time. It was so funny, so consistently funny, and it was a show about just, like, normal, fat, trashy, average Americans, right? It wasn't a show about fake, pretty people, like what we had for the most part before that. It was so cutting edge. It was so controversial. It was so hilarious. And I went in thinking, because I saw the commercials, I heard about the hype. I, I didn't watch the new Full House. I didn't watch any of the other ones. 
I didn't watch the new Boy Meets World. And we can talk about Topanga later. I know a lot of you guys out there, she was like your childhood crush. We can talk about her later. <laughs> but uh, anyways, Roseanne. Roseanne was a show ahead of its time. I know everybody's talking about this, and I know you guys like me to talk about other stuff that the mainstream isn't talking about. But I do like to talk about the mainstream stuff sometimes because it's what's going on. I think it's okay. But I went in with the lowest expectations. I was like, oh my god, this isn't going to work. They're going to try too hard. It's not going to be funny. It's going to be garbage. And I barely wanted to watch it. But I happened to be on Twitter, and I saw a tweet, somebody saying that they had like 20 million viewers. And I was thinking, oh my god, that's a lot of freaking people watching one show. Rarely does any television program get ratings like that nowadays. So after hearing that, and after seeing people were saying that it was good, that it was funny, I went ahead and watched it. Oh my god, I couldn't have been more wrong. I am a big man. I can admit when I'm wrong. I don't mind doing that. I was wrong about this. That show was freaking hilarious. It was just as funny as the original the original show, the original Roseanne. It had all the same people on it. I'm pretty sure the writer or writers were the same too because the humor was the same. They kind of did a little bit too much of the political stuff, but what they did, it was entertaining, it was funny, and I did appreciate the non-left wing. <laughs> I appreciate seeing anything that's not super liberal on any TV show, because everything is so liberal on every TV show nowadays, because it's called the liberal media. Not that I really give a shit about liberal or conservative in the grand scheme of things, but I'm really annoyed in the here and now with liberal politics and some of the stupid crap that comes out of people's mouths. And it's not just the left. I don't mean to pick on the progressives out there. It's not about that. I think that, trust me, I think that freaking racist white Republicans are just as annoying and detestable, and I totally get why people hate that sort of stereotype. I, I totally get that. Those people are, uh, you just can't even talk to them. They'll drive you into a rage. Any extreme left or right type of thing is really annoying. Uh, the truth is always in the middle, and this is part of the manipulation, et cetera, et cetera. But anyways, I don't have to explain myself every time. I I, I am so annoyed with liberals. And it's refreshing seeing something other than the extreme in-your-face sort of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. When you're watching your favorite TV show, and then all of a sudden there's two dudes kissing. And you keep watching because you don't want to be homophobic, so you keep watching. And then they start doing other stuff, and you keep watching because you don't want to be a bigot. And then they start doing other stuff, and there's sounds and all kinds of things happening, and... You keep watching because you don't want to be a bigot. It's annoying, isn't it? I mean, you can't even you can't even puke or get freaked out or get grossed out because this is the norm nowadays, <laughs> right? You always have to have people putting forth putting forth in TV shows and movies and things like that what they believe because they want to shape society. And get other people to think that way. And I totally get it. I mean, I'm all for the gay marriage and gay rights and all that stuff. 
But I think, like many people, I don't always like seeing that thrust in my face. And then if you say anything, you're this or you're that. And by no means am I, am I, uh, do I have any bias against that sort of thing. I don't care. I think it's wonderful. It's just that I don't like watching, let's say True Blood, for example. I'm watching True Blood, and all of a sudden, there's two guys butt-effing on the show. <laughs> I'm just not looking to see that. If anybody is, then good for you. I think that's great that the programming nowadays meets your particular need. But I I want to watch vampires, not necessarily gay vampires. Although I'm sure some people would say that all vampires are gay, right? <laughs> They do suck a lot. Okay. How did we get on this subject anyways? Oh, yeah. So, Roseanne. Um, great show. I, it's refreshing seeing a show that has more of a conservative type of vibe. Although, I wouldn't even say it really has that. Because you really see both sides on the show because Roseanne's grandson is like a cross-dresser. He's wearing girls, girl clothes to school and everybody's worried he's going to get beat up. And then another one of the grandkids is black. So they are really mixing up the cast. They're including every group that you could possibly include. Smart move, by the way. And I also wanted to say that I think that Roseanne is a very smart lady. I mean, she has always used controversy to elevate herself. And she understood how to do it way back back in the 90s, right? And she was one of the original stand-up comics that just did not give a fuck. They would just say whatever. So respect to that. She would cuss, respect to that, had the balls, metaphorical balls, got to respect that. And even nowadays, when you hear her talk, she sounds like a conspiracy theorist sometimes. She's a smart lady. I'm giving her props. Like, if she even found out about this, me giving her props, that'd be amazing. But I know she won't. I'm just giving her props. I'm just throwing it out there into the void. I'm giving props to Roseanne Barr. I hope Tom Arnold shows up on that show one of these days. He seems like a pretty cool guy. I know he's friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But I digress. And I do not mean to rant forever about this topic and get so off track. Let's get, let's get into the actual structure of the show. Let's uh, do a news story. Okay, so <laughs> Okay, so uh, this one's creepy. Wild Wild Country. Most shocking reveals from the sex cult's FBI informant. This is from the dailybeast.com. Holy moly, Wild Wild Country. Most shocking reveals from the sex cult's FBI informant. David Barry Nab, a.k.a. Swami Krishna Deva. 
the former mayor of Rajneeshpuram, famously flipped on the cult, and his FBI testimony was eye-opening and very disturbing. Netflix Wild Wild Country is so far the must-see television event of 2018. What the hell is this? I do apologize. I don't even know what I'm looking at. This is a show? <laughs> okay, so I, I guess I have this a little bit wrong. So, Wild Wild Country is a show on Netflix, but it seems to be based on a real thing. You know what the problem here is that I should have looked at this story first. <laughs> right, obviously. And I usually do. This one got pushed to the top of the list for some reason. So, I do apologize. How embarrassing. Okay, I found it finally. Wild Wild Country is a Netflix documentary series based on the controversial Indian girl Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and the community of his followers in Oregon. Oh, okay. Interesting. Hmm. You know, that might not be a bad idea to check that out. I do love watching these sorts of things. Now, I don't want to read this because I want to watch it and it's going to ruin it. Now, what do I do? <laughs> Okay, let's put that on hold. I'm going to save that, and we'll come back to it after I watch the show, okay? Okay, deal. Oh, you guys are so understanding. You always just totally get me. I love it. Okay, um, let's move on. This next news story, this comes from APNews.com. U.S. suspects cell phone spying devices in D.C., for the first time, the U.S. government has publicly acknowledged the existence in Washington of what appear to be rogue devices that foreign spies and criminals could be using to track individual cell phones and intercept calls and messages. Oh, speaking of phone calls, I forgot to tell you guys, if you want to call in, if you want to call into the show at any time, oh, let me warm up with the guests, of course, I always say that. Don't call in right when I get them on the line, I want to say hi. Don't screw up the getting-to-know-you process too much. But anyways, if you want to call in, call in at 209-348-9810. That's 209-348-9810. Or just add Ninjashu777 on Skype. That's 209-348-9810. Getting a lot of calls at strange times lately. <laughs> I totally dig it, but remember, if you call, please leave some sort of funny message or say hi or say, rock on end of days. Give me something that I can play on air. If you do that, you are just oh so sweet and helpful. Anyways, where was I? Oh yeah, the cell phone thing. The use of what are known as cell phone site simulators by foreign powers has long been a concern, but American intelligence and law enforcement agencies, which use such eavesdropping equipment themselves, have been silent on the issue until now. In a March 26 letter to Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, the Department of Homeland Security acknowledged that last year it identified suspected unauthorized cell site simulators in the nation's capital. The agency said it had not determined the type of devices in use or who might have been operating them, nor did it say how many it detected or where. Jeez, are these people even capable of doing their jobs? <laughs> the agency's response obtained by... Oh, somebody's calling. Hello... Hello. What's going on, Daniel? Hey there, buddy. 
What's what's happening? Not much. Just chilling. Just doing a little news. That's uh, one of my favorite parts of your show. Yeah, looks like uh, this. These listening devices. They're being. They're being. Uh, Revealed. It turns out that this has been going on for a while. The Department of Homeland Security acknowledged that last year it it identified suspected unauthorized cell site simulators in the nation's capital. So they're doing this in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and the only reason you're hearing about it is because it's in Washington, D.C. Because I heard about those fake cell towers about Two or three years ago, they were doing stories about how there'd be like a cactus and it would tip tip over and there was a a stingray inside it that was getting everybody's information. The agency's response obtained by the Associate Press from Wyden's office suggests little has been done about such equipment known popularly as stingrays. Yeah, whenever I like to refer to it, I like to refer to it as stingrays, 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 stingrays. Who killed the crocodile hunter? It was stingrays. Sting your ass. Sting your ass to death. But the, you know the. Most horrible part about the stingray is anyone on Earth could have one. Yeah, so I bet, you know Earth what? I bet they. Evil. It says right here later in the article that you can get one for just a thousand dollars. Yeah, so everybody go out and get one. It's buying everyone. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, they left us wide open, Daniel. Our own government that's supposed to protect us, you know, that tells us about the terrorists all day long. They left the Internet and all of our computer devices, everything wide open so they could use it. But that means the criminals can, too. Those idiots. That's horrible. That's horrible. Those morons. No, no, it wasn't moronic. It was genius. They're like, (laughs) we'll leave it open. Everybody's stuff will be compromised, but we can access it. Well, hey, Todd, you know what Windows is, right? Yeah, it's a computer program uh, invented by Bill Gates. Yeah, and, and it costs money and you pay for it, but there's a free operating system called Linux, and it's free for anybody that they could use, and it's way more secure than Windows, which costs money. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is It is very weird, but that's part of the conspiracy, I guess, to leave us all kind of vulnerable. Well, I heard a rumor, and it's just something I barely remember, that uh, Bill Gates was, was uh, he left the back door in all the computers. That's why he's the you know, number six billionaire in the world. Bill Gates left his back door open? Uh-huh, for all the computers. They didn't tell anybody. He's one of those uh, 
whatchamacallits, isn't he? One of those uh, uh, people that want to... No, no, no. Like a philanthropist, but instead you want to kill people with... Oh, a eugenicist. Oh, eugenicist. Yeah, his dad. I I don't want to go into the eugenicist movement because other people are so so more well-versed in that. Um, And it's already been told. Man, your show's cool. That last Thanks. guest tonight, you know. Thanks. Your guest tonight, that was so cool. And then you're so cool. Oh. What, what, did you get contacted by the Illuminati? Yeah, I keep getting these letters and these offers. Like, I got one sent to my email, and I got one on Twitter saying, Daniel, you, or saying, hey, call this number, and we'll give you all this money. All you have to do is join. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wild if they're like, meet us at this address and it's like American Satan where you go in and there's all these women and guitars and have whatever you'd like, sir. Deal. <laughs> I'd be weird. <laughs> I'd be um, like, okay, deal. <laughs> <laughs> where do I sign? Give this me that show's pen. Going Tell me where I sign right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how I'm going to become the next Alex Jones. All I got to do is sign on the dotted line. <laughs> Mm. We all know he did it. I, I, I got to say a couple things about. Go on. Oh, I was just joking. I said we all know he did it. Who, Alex Jones? Yeah, you know he signed on the dotted line. <laughs> well, he did get the Bohemian Grove. That's, yeah, that's how he got it. I never even heard of Bohemian Grove until there was suddenly this hoopla about the Bohemian Grove. Um, that's me. He bent over for Walter Cronkite. But did you ever see that video with Walter Cronkite where he's like, I've been accused of of uh, being in, in support of a Luciferian world government. No, I have seen not that seen video? that. No, that sounds oh, it's interesting. incredible. Where Walter Cronkite says, if that's the case, then join me at the right hand of Satan. It, it so good. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, look that up. Walter Cronkite joined me at the right hand of Satan. You know, off record. Just when I think, just when I think I've seen it all. Uh huh. There's always something out there that I haven't seen yet. Oh, completely. And I mean, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's so funny because. I thought that I knew a lot, but this show has taught me that that stuff about there being a Luciferian or satanic inner core to things, it's true. Like, yeah. as hard as it is to believe, it's it's reality. Well, I think there's something there, Daniel, with this Luciferian thing, you know? Like, when you get to the 33rd level of the frickin' Masons, you know, they introduce you to Lucifer... At high levels of the intelligence services, there's Luciferians. I don't think it's all Lucifer. Even that's just a gimmick. That's a gimmick, because what's going to get your attention bigger than the image of Satan or Lucifer? Well, some people do believe that Lucifer and Jesus are the same person. 
That's how they get you to keep from burning your hand on the stove is they tell you Satan's going to get you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think think there's something to what you're saying, Todd, but at the same time, I, I do think that it works both ways, too. I mean, if it's a gimmick, and I'm sure it is, then we could look at Lucifer as a concept, and we could look at it as something that plays out, and we could look at it as an archetype, we could look at it as a symbol, a metaphor... It's just a spiritual con- concept that plays itself out again and again, no matter where and when you are in any reality. Yeah, an archetype they play over and over. But, uh, but I, I, that topic, you know, it's kind of stale. Kind of stale. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Running around with the pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, but it just depends bigger, what he's be, doing with better, that pitchfork. Maybe he's sticking it up somebody's ass. Well, there's better topics. I thought it was pretty cool that he just, you know, was open-minded towards all kinds of weird stuff and then went into the Babylonian, the Babylonian connections to giants. Well, you know, what's, you know what's interesting, Todd? Even in Egypt, they had this character called Set. And he was pretty much Satan for them. And he was he yeah. was actually represented by a giant snake. That was his symbol? Yeah. Because I've seen pictures of Set. And yeah, he's a, has, a, has a Doberman head almost. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's very true. And the thing with a lot of these gods... They'd be depicted in several different ways, but usually there's a few of them that they would kind of stick to. And you know that's that's of interest, Daniel. But if you look if you look back through time, you know Jesus. There's been about twenty different versions of Jesus that existed before he was called Jesus that go back about 5,000 years where that same mythology is played out. No disrespect to Jesus, but if you read uh, Fraser's book, The Golden Bow, it goes through at least 20 religions before Jesus, you know, Christianity, that have the exact same mythos. Yeah, totally. I absolutely agree with that. There is the uh, the stuff from Phrygia, the guys that wear those poofy hats. They think there's some kind of connection of mushrooms. And then, of course, you have Horus from the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian religion slash mythology. But I do think that there's something to be said about, once again, these concepts or archetypes, these stories, these spiritual concepts playing themselves out in any time, any place, they just seem to keep coming back. And there's got to be a reason for that. There's something to figure out here. Well, i, I got to work in. Uh, your last show was one of the most intense shows I think I've heard you do. Ole was so intense. He's a very intense guest. His information 
about them playing the same effects over and over. They're flying these people around that pull off the false flag operations that change our society. That was an intense show, Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. I really think that if somebody would make a really good movie about Martin Luther King and show what really happened, that he was basically just blasted away by the shadow government. I think if somebody would do that, hint, hint, out there, hint, hint, if somebody would do that, then I think it would turn a lot of heads. They've already made that movie, dude. Oh, they did? Martin, yeah, and Martin Luther King's family, they, they took the case to court and James Earl Ray was exonerated in a second trial, and they apologized, you know, they they said, we're sorry, James Earl Ray, the family of Martin Luther King, because they did the case in civil court, and it turned out that the government was responsible for killing him. That was the ruling they found. It was pretty potent. Yeah, it's funny because if you were to go on Wikipedia and read about that, it'll say the same thing, but it'll paint a very different picture. Yeah, they're famous at schmoozing over their version of events. Some of us remember history, though. Some of us remember, you know, what happened. Um and that's why they have such a hard time schmoozing over history with the older generation, like me. Yeah. But uh, and there's so many good things to talk about. There was uh, he was going into Lucifer, and wants to talk about Lucifer. Oh, the serpents. <laughs> he wants to talk about serpents. The earliest religion on the face of the planet that is recorded in history books goes back 5,000 years and it's the order of the serpent. Their symbol was a serpent. They worship serpents. Moses talked about them in the Old Testament. Yeah, in fact the original snake in the Garden of Eden was a upright walking serpent called Nakash. And so you wonder if they're talking about a literal snake that's telling them what to do or the person operating from the the part of the brain called the mandula oblongata, the serpent part of our brains. Tool made song, you know, songs talking about different parts of the brain. I think they might have made one called Mandula Abangala. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, who, Carl Sagan, he wrote a very famous book, and he kind of went into that whole uh, reptilian brain thing. I I believe it was called The Dragons of Eden. Uh, Carl Sagan? Yeah, Carl Sagan. Very boring very boring person. Um, in you, my you would opinion. think, you would think, but he did write this book, and this book is actually like 
one of the major things in the reptilian sort of thing. Concept that the part of our there's a part of our brain that controls our our thoughts and understandings. The creepiest thing I ever heard, Daniel, was um, they were talking about how elderly care workers report when people start to go into Alzheimer's. Sometimes they they get really mean because their brain starts to deteriorate on top and the reptilian part of their brain starts to come out. And they sound just like a possessed person. Yeah, they start cussing at the care worker, you know. And, or they're speaking in tongues or people that never swore, old people are just cussing this person out for no reason. Because everything they didn't want to say, they're suddenly spewing out, you know? I, I can explain that, of... Todd. I can explain that to you. So, uh-huh. okay, so you you are touching on something here. And I think the problem with you is you make a lot of, like, you make a lot of discrepancies and you separate things. Like, you separate, like, anything that has to do with the Christian religion. You just hate it. Like, you, you have your goggles on. And if something good comes <laughs> through that pipeline, you can't see it at all because you're so biased against it. And that's fine. No, We're all biased no. against something. It's, this is an attack on I, you. I don't, I don't hate it. I just see it through a lens. Yeah, yeah, that's all I'm saying. So you see it through a lens, and that's fine. That's not what I'm about to talk about. I'm just laying the groundwork. But the thing is that there is something here where the beast inside of man is being brought forth the lower nature the evil the darkness the the part of man that comes from the pit it's being brought to the surface and that reptilian part of the brain is all very much part of this mhm that's a scientific way of looking at it without saying oh it's satan it's lucifer it's the devil it's the force of evil this is just a scientific way of looking at exactly what's going on. This reptilian part of the brain, it's becoming dominant more and more. Well, let's say it's, it doesn't leave you. It just has less sway at certain periods. It's stupid. It's stupid, and it's lower, and it's all about survival. It has no spirituality. It has no higher functionality. The only way that this type of brain can become connected with the rest of the world is using technology because it's closed itself off to the true psychic abilities of the human race. It's cold-blooded, but guess what? It's the most basic function of survival. Um, Let's not forget birds are reptiles. And they survived by having a bird's eye view. So before you throw out the reptilian part of the brain as all bad, realize it's a survival mechanism that's part of our, our evolution. It is. I I totally agree with that. In fact, I would take it a step further, and I would say that if you were to take a type of drug, like a psychedelic drug that 
that is designed to tear down the ego and make you feel this state of bliss and, oh, everything is so great, this is so awesome, but what's going to happen if you're tripping on some drug like that and then some people just walk in your house and take your couch and your TV and everything that you own? Well, you're going to sit there and go, I don't have a couch and a TV and I don't own it anymore. I mean, <laughs> of course that's what's going to happen. And you're also um, going to but, say, I should have snapped out of it. What am I doing having these hippie ideas when I should have been protecting my stuff? Well, I don't know about those hippie ideas because um, it's a pretty crazy topic you got us off on to. How do you get us over there? <laughs> I I don't know, Todd. This is end of days radio, and we go deep down into the rabbit's hole. <laughs> There's some really cool stuff we were going to talk about before you took us over people stealing our couch. Well, no, 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 um, no. You got to think about this though, Todd, because I don't mean to insult hippies. I'm not attacking the hippies. They're fine. They're they're a great part of our conscious evolution. <laughs> But what I'm saying is that too much of that mentality, next thing you know, you're not fighting for your survival. You you have to have that too. Oh. You have to master the entire soft. You gotta have the six 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 and you gotta have the seven yeah. seven seven. Yeah, that's what the hippies did was they just basically said, Peace, love, man and then the, the and then the military industrial complex marched over the top of their heads. Yeah, that's where we're at. You gotta be real. It, yeah, remember exactly. When, um, you remember when uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young did that song? Forgetting Ohio, ten soldiers and Nixon's coming. We're finally on our own. You remember that song, Ohio, by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? Oh yeah, good song. Yeah, it was about the Kent State Massacre where the National Guard fired on student protesters. And that set off that set off the protest for real. When people saw on TV that somebody accidentally started shooting protesters on American soil, our own people were shooting our own people, that really set the all the turmoil that was going off at the end of the 60s and the 70s and Martin Luther King and all that. You know, it's sad sad because people forget about stuff like that and they don't teach it at school either. That's when shit started to turn around because when people saw that they shot our own protesters, oh, and then Vietnam was a lie and... Nixon was not a crook, but he was a crook. Man, our whole society turned. So then, Daniel, they pretended that they were going to look into it. We're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to get rid of Nixon, and all the corruption will go out. They pretended, right? Uh Uh-huh. That it was going to get better. It was just a ruse. The flower children kind of... So yeah, now well, then we went into the 80s and then Reagan. They do that all the time. They still do that. Now people think, oh, if 
Trump Trump didn't get elected and Hillary would have got elected. Oh, things would be great. We would all be happy right now. We'd all be running naked through the forest and just enjoying the fruits of the earth. There'd be no problems. Wouldn't that be nice? They let you live like an adult. Treated you like an adult. The gods are hungry, Daniel, and they require blood. Well, they got to get everybody angry about something or another so they can keep everybody arguing on Twitter all day and keep us from actually figuring out what's going on in the Middle East or what's going on in the underground bunkers or what's going on in your neighbor's basement. What? What, Is there any news stories? Yeah, of course. Let's let's see what we got here. I'll go down by the... Let me get down here by the portal and then you read me the news story. Oh, the portal. Yeah, the portal. Your guest got me like, I got. I better go down by the portal because he's talking about the portals. You're, free, you're <laughs> freaking me out, Todd. You got CERN going I'm on. kind of weird like that. You got CERN going on in your basement. I do. I don't even know how it happens. It's a philosophical concept. I, I just, you know, said let's, Kind of sensed it. Maybe there's something down there. Went down there. Other people sensed it. Shit's come through. I got people that won't come over anymore because of the portal. And then others that love it. It's really weird. But tell me a news story. This isn't some kind of... Down by the portal now. opening. Todd, this isn't some kind of Satan portal, is it? (laughs) Oh, hell no. I'm a... I'm a non-Satanist. Okay, non-Satanist. just check in. No, I'm not. I'm not a Satanist. I'm not a non-Satanist. I'm not a Satanist. Okay, as long as the portal is benign. The portal is just a freaking thing that opens between the whatever it is. Don't know what it is. We're not going to have some reptilians coming through that damn thing, are we? Different shit comes through. Lots of inspiration at times. I swear a few musicians came through, like Kurt Cobain one night and then David Bowie once or twice uh, shortly after. Holy crap. I'd rather have a reptilian than David Bowie come through. That guy's scary. It was really strange. The reptilians, I don't see those. I don't see those. Ow, ow, that's about as close as I get to reptilian. You had an, he, <laughs> you had an owl come through? No, Al's about as close as I get to a reptilian. I haven't seen any reptilians. Oh, Al. Yeah, Al. Speaking of Al, he's scheduled to come on this program on April 11th at 7.30 Pacific Standard Time. That's going to be probably your best program of all time. Sorry to say it. Yeah, yeah. Todd, you're very excited about this. I'm so excited because... Maybe you can get him to talk about his reptilian DNA. You go into detail about it. All right. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna really hear him out this time. We're gonna just keep it going. I'm not gonna interrupt. I'm not gonna argue anything he's talking about. I'm just gonna let him go. We're gonna find out what really makes this guy tick. I would argue. I would say, you know, wait, wait a minute. You know, if something don't sound right. Get him. Question him. It'll follow a line. 
he doesn't veer. He's not asking about him being Jesus. Okay, let's do it. Like I said, I want to hear, I want to hear the bulk of it. I want to hear all the crazy stuff that goes on next to the portal in the basement. Well, uh, he comes over once in a while. Al's not here all the time. About maybe once a month, he'll stop in and play guitar because he plays such a mean guitar. Um, he's my buddy for many years, but I love him because he's a musician. So that's going to be one of your best shows, Daniel. I love that. Drill yeah, them on I'm the excited. reptiles. Drill them on ancient knowledge, especially anything to do with the druids. Um, yeah, it should be incredible. All right, Todd. This story comes from abc.net.au. It says that somebody claims that Wizard of Oz Munchkins molested Judy Garland. No, no, I'm sorry. Oh. Claims that Wizard of Oz Munchkin molested Judy Garland deserve a response. So it turns oh. out... Oh. <laughs> okay, this one I was prepared for. So it turns out that you... Judy Garland was actually sexually assaulted by some of the little people she was working with on the set of Wizard of Oz. Somebody claims. Have you ever seen that movie, The Wizard of Oz? Oh, yeah, that's a staple. Everyone's seen that one. Is that outfit not just kind of wow? So you got those little people running around. They're shorter than, you know, they're short. Well, the guy that supposedly did it, he was one of the Lollipop Guild. Yeah. You know, the little guys with the weird hair. He handed her the Lollipop in the movie. Yeah, exactly. Apparently he was, or a bunch of them were, sticking their hands up her skirt. Yowza. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Um, the source is dubious, it looks like. And. No, it's not dubious, it's her husband. It is? Said she told her that. Yeah, her that, husband. That said came it. from her husband. Yeah, she said, now that she's gone and passed away, I'm going to tell what she said. She told me those little midgets, they were drunk every night and putting their hands up my skirt on set every... Oh, my God. No, I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know it was her husband. That's really disturbing. Yeah, their hands were so... They were so short that they could get right to the thing. And Oh, my God. <laughs> horrible, horrible. Sounds like... Okay, yeah, I found it. Version. I found it. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm looking for it. It says, it says that the actress's late husband, Sid Luft, in a re-release book, Judy and I, reportedly writes, they'd make Judy's life miserable on set by putting their hands under her dress. Okay, this is no bullshit. This actually happened. <laughs> There's a lollipop, kids. Holy crap. Oh, so they're they're running around in their little costumes, sticking their hands up her dress. That's that's terrible. Sick. Sounds like a porno from the seventies. 
you know, they've, uh, they've know. made porn <laughs> movies based on The Wizard of Oz, and it wasn't this bad. This is some <laughs> sick, midget, nasty, weird... Oh, my God. What was really going on was worse than the fantasy, yeah. Holy shit. Holy oh, shit. She had, to li- she had to live with that. Uh, Ooh. Every time she saw the movie or heard the song, oh, God, no! And, you know, I'm looking oh, at this horrible. picture of her, and her eyes, they just look so bugged out, and she looks so scared. They're probably pumping her full of methamphetamines. Every time she'd bend over, the midget beat her. <laughs> 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 I just teased I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> I don't know about those midgets. Oh, my Lord. Have you, hey, have you ever heard the thing where if you look at the background during one of the scenes of The Wizard of Oz, you can see one of the, the midgets hanging himself? Or munchkins, I'm sorry. Hanging himself? Yeah, it I, it turned out to be an urban legend, but there was this scene in Wizard of Oz, if you watch the background carefully, you could see this shadowy figure of a dwarf climb up this ladder, and then he hangs himself, and then you see his body just swinging. That's too weird. What do you make of it? Well, they investigated, and they found out it was a bird. Huh. Yeah, pretty unexciting, right. but who knows? That could be a lie to cover up the truth. It might it might have been one of these perverted right drunk ones. Right on. Uh, well, okay. How about the got? one? How about the one where you could play Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, and play The Wizard of Oz, and it matches up perfectly. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. There's, you know. Mandela effect, no, no, maybe, no, no, no. I mean, it matches perfectly. I don't think, maybe they did make the album to fit with Wizard of Oz, but doesn't that sound like a lot of, hmm. Let's, you know what, Todd, let's forget the news for a second. Let's do something else. Yeah. Let's read a lesson to, listener. <laughs> let's read a letter from a listener, and then you and I can comment on it. Sounds cool. Okay. This is a letter, an email from a guy named David Sandoz. He says, "Dear End of Days Radio, your show is good, but it would be better if you added fake 1940s style commercials." Hmm. That's it. Yeah, I I don't know. Fake nineteen forties oh. commercials. Well, what does the nineteen? There wasn't any radio was only coming around in like you know I mean, what kind of commercials are going on? <laughs> Everybody used Daniel's special <laughs> butt cleaner. I don't know. Get a really cheap. Microphone. <laughs> hey, that's, buy some soap. that's not the worst idea. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> Just like an old microphone that makes me sound like shit. Like makes me sound like I'm <laughs> in the 1940s. You do a rebroadcast of War of the Worlds. Oh my god, it's horrible. I can do that. I can do that. Oh, my boss are in here. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, shut up, shut up. Stop talking to me. What's going on in here? I'm so scared. Help me. 
Daniel, where are you? Help me. Do like a, a do like a Brady Bunch episode. Daniel, are you in the cave? <laughs> did, you, uh, did you did you fall down the well? Oh, I love that. That's I'm cool. I'm in the well. Help me, Todd. Go get my parents. Kids fall in wells all the time around here because there's lots of open pits. Help me. Uh, it's horrible. Daniel, oh we're going to get some rescue. I'll get, I'll get Lassie's. Oh, my. Such <laughs> such fun we have here on End of Days Radio. Uh, it's so fun. It's so fun. We get all serious and esoteric and semi-intellectual on occasion. And then we get we have some fun. I think we're just being us. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know. It's I, I'm twice, being Daniel twice. and Todd's being Todd, and it's just it just works. What can I say? Well, you know, it's just we're we're just regular people. I'm not on a book tour schedule. I don't think you are either. Um, I, I am a lunatic. You are a lunatic. I, I was parking in the parking lot, you know, where I work. I'm setting tile. You know, I'm a tile setter. And we're doing the big old research center up at the University of Utah, where they do all these um, uh, have labs, and people with neurological symptoms are coming in, and autistic people, children. I'm doing the lobby. I'm setting tile, and and uh, I pull in and I park in a spot that says reserved for patients only. And uh, I get out. I get ready to go to work, and this lady comes out, kind of heavy set, half half heavy set, and goes, "Would you mind not parking there? <laughs> this is reserved for patients only, and they're dis they're." disabilitated they have problems you're trying to get in the front door and i'm like no problem i'm <laughs> smiling you know but she's like you're the third person i told today don't park in that spot because these people have a hard time getting to the front door she's got a and point I'm like, no problem i will move i will move but i almost said i'm crazy does that count because the whole building's full of people that are coming in uh they have some problems. I don't think you're crazy, Todd. <laughs> no, I bet it's a joke. If you were crazy, crazy you would not be able to take care of yourself. You'd be living on the streets. Mm. One of those guys, yeah. No, on occasion, I I let the reptilian brain just sort of see see if you're if you're if you're powerful enough, you can channel those reptilian energies and broadcast them out through the through the reason part of your brain. You can contact the abilities. Todd, if you want to, you can contact the reptilians. I just don't recommend it. <clears throat> well, <laughs> if you're going to contact some being or God or something, why would you contact them? Wouldn't you contact something more incredible? Like Shiva or or uh hmm. if you really want it to happen and you really have that intent and you broadcast it out there and you really in your heart want it to happen then they will come to you yeah you can invoke beings for sure yeah Look around you people are walking around in the street believing that 
this God and that God is right there, and oh, it's right there in my heart. Right on. I mean, they'll actually Um, show up. Oh, they will show up. Yeah, yeah, there's there's methods to make them manifest. Well, Um, first what happens is you start feeling their energy, and you just know it's them. It has this certain feel to it, like this certain vibration. You could just feel it, and then you start seeing this eye. You see this eye in your mind's eye, and you start seeing it in your mind's eye all the time, and that's how you know you're in contact with them. Magicians are taught to do a little research and study the god or goddess or demon and try to see them, all their characteristics. It helps to manifest them. If you actually study their belief systems and... That's what magicians are taught. But, um, and invoking is a very powerful uh, thing that makes you realize, wow, you can invoke these gods and demons according to magical lore. Yeah, um, I, I think it's entirely possible. And, and I also think that we all do it every day. Like, say, I'm sitting on my couch and... I'm looking at my old CDs and I see a picture of Jimi Hendrix. Well, I just evoked the god of guitar. Kind of, kind of. But there, but it has a more powerful expression, though. It can, it can be a more powerful expression than just looking at your CD and thinking about him. Sometimes it can actually manifest through, I believe the current of energy of what he was promoting in the sound. Let me ask you something, Everything, Todd. Yeah. So, tell me if you think this is a cool idea. So, this new thing I've been noticing, this new trend, it's their podcasts. You like podcasts, right? Yeah. Well, I love, all I, all I do is listen to those. Yeah, me too. I love podcasts. But these are in-character podcasts where the people on the show, they actually pretend to be characters in some frickin' fantasy world. And they role-play on the show. It's like, it's almost like the old Dick Tracy radio shows or something like that. Yes, they're making up fictional stories and they're reading them as the podcast. They're enacting the plays. Yeah, I've heard those. I got... What? There was something missing, Daniel. I could get into old radio broadcasts. As a kid, you know, when there was just radio, there was a show called... God, it was called... I can't remember. It was on AM radio. Superman? No, no, it was a mystery theater. Oh, I where heard they that. read shows and everybody got into the parts and they play the creaking door would open every time the show would start. E. G. Marshall, one of the most famous actors and voices of a, of a generation or two ago, was the narrator, and it was mystery theater. Or something like that. It's killer. It's incredible. All right, Todd. So 
check this yeah. out. Next next week, me and you, let's do it. Let's uh let's do our own like cop show. Cop show? Yeah, we'll do it like old school radio. Oh, well, cop show, cop show. Oh, it doesn't have to be a cop no. show. We can do anything. We can do we can do Superman or we can do our own thing. We can do any, we can any be paranormal show. investigators. No, cool. We can do voices. I have a big piece of tin that sounds just like lightning if you hit it right. Perfect. We can do it on... I'm into sound effects. I'm not the wolf fan or anything like that, but... We can do it on Halloween. We'll do like a scary story. Dude, that'd be so cool. Put together some weird-ass scary story. That'd be really cool. Yeah, and... and I'd do that. I'd do that. Yeah. For sure. Let's, let's do it. Okay, Todd, I've had you yeah, on for about... Cool. I've, so had, you'd, I've had you'd you on a long time. A new, before I let you go, introduce a new segment called uh, Daniel's uh, uh, Weird Theater. Or it's a <laughs> story. Whoa, hello, children. Welcome to That'd Daniel's cool. Weird no. Theater. Whoa. Uh-huh. <sighs> little small segment at hello. the end of the show. I like it. Let's do it. Horror story. You know what my wife loves the most, Daniel? She listens to podcasts nonstop. Not yours, but that's nothing against you. She has different tastes. But she likes the the stories. She likes the ghost stories, the spooky made-up stories. If they put a little theater in the background, weird sound effects, she loves that. Listen to a story. That's a great idea, Daniel. Yeah. I like that. All right. All right. I, I will let you go, my man, but fantastic show. Hope that didn't keep you too long. I had a bunch of other shit I was going to say and didn't. Well, maybe this Halloween we can reenact Dracula. <laughs> we'll do Dracula. Or maybe Frankenstein. <laughs> I have that book, Dracula and Frankenstein. Or Pumpkinhead. There you go. Let's do Lovecraft stories. We can do anything. That's what we always do, anything. Totally, totally. But, no, I appreciate your, your time, Daniel, and the uh, fantastic show, my man. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. All right. I'll talk to you later, Todd. Rock on, my man. Okay. That was Todd the Bod calling in from the salty state of Utah. Interesting talking to him. He has some very interesting views. Always fun to talk to old Todd. He do, he does seem to get a little angry though whenever anybody talks about the devil. Do you think it's because the devil is watching over his shoulder? I'm just joking, Todd. <laughs> oh my. So much to talk about, so little time left. I think that This has been a good show. I love when it's off the cuff, just like tonight, when we just freestyle and jibber-jabber and kind of improvise as we go. There's a time for this. There's a time for that. There's a time for more structure and order, and there's a time for chaos. 
I think that whole thing with the in-character podcast is pretty cool, though. I think that something like that would be interesting, but I have to wonder, is this such an extreme niche that it's going to be hard to find an audience and maintain it, or is it just so fun to do that you just do it? Because <laughs> that's what I'm doing. I mean... I'm kind of just doing what I want to do. I don't really profit off of the show at all, as many of you know. I just do it because it comes naturally. It's what I feel like I should be doing. That's the best way that I can put it. This show is completely free. It'll always be free here on planet Earth, free to you, free to me. I don't pretend that it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it's free, <laughs> right? And when you get something for free, it doesn't matter if it's not the best thing ever because it's free. So I think this show has an advantage on many other shows. Whether you like this show or whether it's your cup of tea or not, it's completely free. And you're free to listen and you're free to not listen at any time. And there's plenty of content here and plenty of interesting stuff for you to hear. So I'm not sure why you would not listen, to be quite honest. But... I know that it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I will promise that it will always be everybody's cup of free because I don't believe in charging for something like this. We're supposed to be waking people up. We're supposed to be fighting the man. This is the resistance, baby. That's an underground movement dedicated to something or another to spread the ideals of some kind and create a lot of change. And we're going to do it, damn it. We're going to do it right now. There's no time. There's no time for doubt anymore. We know this stuff is real. We know that we are screwed. And if you can't see that, then pretty soon it's going to be too late for you. So please, please look at this stuff. Follow the links. Pretty soon you're not even going to be able to do that because the internet is going extinct. They're actually going to censor everything on the internet. They've got us all on social media. They've got us all on the same platforms. Now they just have to edit those platforms. And it's over. Why do you think there's an endofdaysradio.com? Why do you think endofdaysradio.com is on a server that I own do you understand what I'm saying? This is a completely isolated free enterprise. It cannot be edited. I'm not going to depend on any other outlets, networks. Networks have always been a disaster. I've never wanted to be a part of any networks. There were times when I found myself in that position due to bad moves in the past that were not really my moves. <laughs> but it's always been a bad idea and it always will be. You don't need anybody. All of you guys out there that have your own shows, you don't need anybody. That's what I really want you to know more than anything else is that you do not need anybody. You do not need to depend on a network. You do not need to get anybody's approval. You can do it all yourself nowadays. And that's the way you got to do it if you really want to do it. And I can show you how. 
I can show you the door, but you got to walk through. But if you're willing to put in the time, then I'm willing to put in the time too. I'm kind of bummed. I found out they're not going to make any more Justice League movies. Apparently, they didn't do that well, especially compared to their Marvel counterparts. Excuse me, I need a sip of the dew. Oh my god, so delicious. A staple of this podcast, or show, whatever it is. Where the hell was I? So, the DC Universe shows, they are all being canceled. They're all being just swept from the board. Because they're not as popular as their Marvel counterparts. They had bad reviews, a lot of rottens on Rotten Tomatoes. And the sh- the movies, they pretty much failed. They did not get over on a wide scale. They did not connect with audiences. People weren't into them. They were like, oh, cool, that's so awesome. Guess what happened? Uh, people were like that with the Avengers, with the Marvel movies. Black Panther just did phenomenal. And that's Disney making all those movies. They know what they're doing. They pump a lot of money into their projects. Great special effects, et cetera, et cetera. Fantastic. But... As a comic book fan, as somebody that loves movies, I'm bummed about this. I wanted to see, not to spoil the movie for anybody, but they showed a character called Deathstroke at the end. And let me tell you, you guys that aren't into comics and don't know what I'm talking about, Deathstroke is a fucking badass. Deathstroke is a fucking badass. You guys know Deadpool? Deadpool? 